Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Be revolutionary. UMass is the Commonwealth's flagship public research university and committed to the relentless pursuit of progress. Learn more at umass.edu. Bridgewater State University is proud to sponsor this conversation from Boston Public Radio. More at bridgew.edu slash gradclass. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, the consumer price index is rising at the fastest rate in 40 years. So how is inflation affecting your life and will it affect your vote in November? We'll ask. Then Massachusetts has joined a number of states dropping school mask mandates as the Omicron surge wanes. Former Education Secretary Paul Revel joins us on that. Yet another vacancy atop the Boston school system and sexual assault and retaliation at Harvard. Andrew Cabral on potential breakthroughs at Mass General on how to detect stone drivers, as well as a new report from the state's Office of Public Safety on the racial makeup of traffic stops in Massachusetts. That and more ahead, Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, you weren't here yesterday. What did you do? Uh, nothing. I'm sorry, you didn't hear my question? <laughs> was, there, was there a delay? You know what, I was, doing? You know what I was doing, Jim? I w- reversed the tables. I was slithering yesterday. That's what I was doing. Nice That's what you try. do in your days off. That was a really troubling <laughs> pause, I should say. We'll get back to that many times I was up to suspicious today. activities. Okay, so welcome back. We're glad to have you, Jeremy. Thank you. $250 a month. That's how much this recent inflation spike is costing the average American. New numbers, as I'm sure you know, out this morning show prices on a whole climbed about 7.5% over the past year. That's the highest bump in over 40 years. Just to compare, according to the Wall Street Journal, the average is about 2.1% in 2018 and 19. The increases are hitting different industries, obviously at different rates, meaning things like, for example, chocolate for Valentine's Day, up 100% over last year in some parts of the country. Groceries overall, more than 6%. Gasoline, 40%. So we'd like to know if you're feeling the crunch. And if it changes what you're buying these days, how you're living, and maybe how you'll even vote come November. So give us a buzz, 877-301-8970. You can also email us at bpr at wgbh.org or tweet us at BOS Public Radio. Were you feeling it? I mean, we make good salaries, so obviously we're not the primary sufferers. Were you feeling this most? Well, I'll tell you where I am. Where? Gas, I'm really sensitive in my head. I don't know why. Gas prices? Gas prices. I knew you were going to say that. And yeah. you, because you see it pretty regularly. You fill up your car you know, pretty regularly, unless you're smart enough to have an EV or a hybrid. You have a hybrid, of course, and I used to, but I don't anymore. Shame which I'm, emba- I'm embarrassed. Well, Terrible. my lease is up in July. I'm going to atone for that sin, too. <laughs> but that was like a 12-sentence answer. That, in any case, but uh, that's where I'm feeling it uh, 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 the most. And uh, I can't I, – I just – for average for average moderate income Americans, and they are the average Americans, this is a real jolt kind of thing. Well, you know, think? my uh, youngest kid just bought her first car, 
And oh, I know, it was yeah. it was first of all you couldn't find any used cars. I mean, the moment they came on the market, they were practically gone. Uh, the used cars are selling for much more than they should be because there's not enough used cars uh, running around, and and they're over the blue book. Uh, but you know why value. there aren't enough used cars around? No chips for new cars, so there's a, a a crappy supply of new cars. Yeah. So a huge demand for used well, cars. Well, they were also saying in the story we read from someplace this morning yeah. that um, car manufacturing uh, plants are having terrible trouble getting their their parts, and that's going to be chips made chips in particular. Yeah. Yeah, and that's going to be made worse by this uh, truck. Uh, boycott in Canada thing, which may be coming to the United States pretty soon. Mm-hmm. They also talked about rents have been going up a lot, and um, furniture has gone up a lot. Those are those are big things that have gone. Not to mention food that people know. We get this little chart from our staff here: Whirlpool that owns KitchenAid and Maytag, between five and twelve percent increases. I can't. You didn't mention the number on used cars: thirty nine percent. Yeah, huge. That is huge. I know. She was talking about she was paying for the car. And I was looking at the blue book and I was saying, God, that's more than the blue book. And the reason is it was a low mileage, older car. There's not many of those. Um, Around so things have at Valentine's Day. I was going to talk later with uh, John Gruber about the mm-hmm. price of uh, roses on Valentine's yeah. Day. They've risen about twenty percent. Wow. Well, what? you know what this is all about. I, I, as you know, my economic skills are limited to say the best, but it's essentially growing demand in this country meets broken supply chain. I mean, don't you think that's a huge part of this deal? Whatever it is, I don't know. Why I'm getting into the analysis how we got here. The bottom line is inflation is huge. As we said at the beginning, highest in 40 years. And we want to know what it's meant in your life. Have you felt it? If you have, have you changed any of your buying uh, behavior? Or are you just suffering? Well, you know what's really uh, terrible about this, too, is that lots of people's hourly wages have gone up. And that's been one of the good things about the pandemic with the labor mm-hmm. shortage. Uh, work, uh, employers that are really stingy have had to, or greedy have had to pay more to their hourly workers. But it, when inflation's going up so much, it's like you get you get a raise and your raise is eaten up by the fact that you have to pay all this money for uh, food and, and, uh, and rent and Valentine's Day flowers, Jim, which is the real killer, as we all know. 877-301-8970. So we're trying to make inflation a little bit real rather than just numbers today with your help at 877-301-8970. By the way, Oreos, Oreo cookies. I haven't had an Oreo in a long time. Yeah, Oreos, well, that's one of my favorite things. Sour Patch Kids, through the roof, Jim. You eat Oreos now? You eat Oreos now? Uh, uh, not as much as I used to when oh. my kids were still living at home. But do you open them up to eat them, or you eat them? I like the double stuffed. I, but do you okay. open them in two parts? Well, or no? I, I I mix it up. Oh, you know, I I, I, I do that. have it with milk or That's with really with good. coffee with lots of milk, and I, yeah. I sometimes I dunk the Oreo right into the wow. coffee or the milk. In that That's case, amazing. I don't open it up. Mm. But I used to like eat all the cream first. I don't do that anymore. Wow. But listen to this. This is up your alley. What's that? Uh, Oscar Mayer Heinz ketchup. Kraft mac and cheese, all these things um, have gone up if by you're as much suggesting, 20%. Excuse me. If you were suggesting that I would ever allow an Oscar Mayer hot dog to cross my lips. I'm sorry. You do Hebrew I am National? Insulted okay. in what, Hebrew Pearl, National? Hebrew National. Sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, really? I'm sorry. I, I know. You're a good Jewish American, Jim. I'm it's not because I'm a good Jewish American because yep. I'm not, actually. Okay. What I am you're is a hot Jewish dog American. connoisseur. Oh. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seven. Let's start in Newburyport with Sally. Sally, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. First time, long time. Thanks so much for having me. We love that. Welcome. Um, thank you. So I sell food to restaurants for a living. Oh. And so I'm on the road every single day, and I have to fill up my gas tank two to three times per week. Uh. A couple of years ago, I remember paying $22 at the pump. 
and yesterday I went to fill up, and it was almost fifty dollars yeah, to fill up my huge. tank. It's huge. Horrible. And also in terms of inflation, um, ever since the pandemic started, I've seen wholesale food prices skyrocket, and it's just starting to hit uh, the retail markets now. But I'm sure people have noticed that when you go out to eat, your your costs are rising substantially. And the restaurant industry is really, really struggling with it right now. So, Sally, are you able to tell on your end, since you sell foodstuffs, uh, how people's buying behavior and consumption behavior is changing as a result of the price changes or no? Um, Yeah, I can see it. Um, Restaurants, especially with Valentine's Day coming up, they're not buying the expensive, you know, strip loin steaks or filet mignon. They're going for a cheaper option, like maybe pork tenderloin um, and, you know, maybe not the high-end vegetables right now, but they'll go with green beans instead of heirloom carrots, that type of thing. They're trying to cut costs wherever they can because things are rising like you wouldn't believe. Sally, before you go, uh, I did some uh, very quick math here, which anybody could do. So your gas prices costs are up in the neighborhood of 70, 60, 70 to hundred dollars a week. How do you handle that? Well, um, I don't have a choice. It's my job. Yeah. So, um, I'm single and I'm, you know, living in an expensive town, so it's not easy. Um, so I try to cut my costs whenever I go to the grocery store you know, I'm not buying the name brands as much. Yeah. I'm not going organic where I used to. And and I'm, frankly, I'm not going out to eat very much at all mm. because I can't afford it. Wow. Sally, that was a great first call. Yeah, we hope you make you. another one soon. We really appreciate it. Now, Robert points out that on the bright side, beer is only up 4%, which is good <laughs> news for Super Bowl Sunday. And Sophia from Cambridge advises we should all stop driving and just start drinking. And we'll still vote Democratic since the Republicans have given the rich a nice, big, fat tax rate. Yeah, that's the only good thing for a, a Biden at this particular thing. point. I mean, even though it is true that the GDP is up and, and job creation is up, uh, the, the only good thing for Biden at this stage, I think, is look at the alternative. Well, I don't know if people – do you think people make that sort of judgment? I hope judgment? so. I hope so because the Republican Party has lost its marbles. See, I mean, I, my sense is that most times in this country, as evidenced by, I think, with all due respect to President Biden, mm-hmm. people vote against things and people as much as they vote for them. And I think it's a real problem for him because I believe it is still the economy stupid. And by the way, the yeah. COVID in, issue is as much an economic issue. I know this is no great revelation mm-hmm. either as it is a public health issue. Right. But I think it's important for the Democrats to keep hammering home the things that would have made a huge difference in their life. The Republicans all voted against mm-hmm. help with child care, help with uh, time off, help with uh, schools, help with college education, help with early childhood education. All those things they basically said drop dead, not to mention climate change. Shane in the car, thank you for Calling. Hey, Shane in the car. Hi. Um, so I I think that, uh, you know, food costs, I'm spending more on groceries than I ever have, so that's affecting me. But I will never complain about gas prices again because I lived in London for six years. Yeah. And it's about eight or nine bucks a gallon there. Wow. Well, you know, it's almost, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of five bucks a gallon in California as we, as we speak. So you're doing a comparison, comparative analysis. Do you really do that? That's like an intellectual pursuit. Do you really do that? Or do you not have a, do you not have a visceral reaction when you're at the gas pump, despite what's in your head, Shane? I'm just happy it's not as expensive as it was. In well, the UK. that's great. That's a very healthy attitude. Well, also, you know, Shane, thanks. We're a very selfish country. I How mean, is that? Do we all have to have these huge SUVs? Do we all have to drive these huge? I, I saw this car. I think it's by Cadillac. 
What's it called? Escalade, yeah. My God, it's the size of a tank. Mm-hmm. I mean, how much gas does that thing take? And why does anybody need it? You know, you could get a Prius, and then you wouldn't. It's a small car, obviously, mm-hmm. but you could get a small SUV. You could get a small hybrid SUV. You could get a Toyota Highlander, a hybrid SUV, and and not having to pay all this money at the gas. Well, tank. The, I mean, in all, in all fairness, if I had a Prius, I'd have to drive with my legs out the window. <laughs> so that would be real. Remember when I had that Volvo years ago where the poison yeah, was Jim, coming out? Jim's head couldn't fit in. No, that wasn't what happened. I had a Volvo station wagon, a used Volvo station wagon, and there was this horrible chemical. Come, remember this? Almost put me in. The, I actually yeah. put me in the emergency yeah, Jim room. Was always, we almost lost him. We almost lost. You almost lost me. And for the weeks that I had this poisonous chemical coming out, before I thought maybe I should go talk to a doctor about this, uh, I used to drive. This is true in the dead of winter with my head out the window. It's, I'm raising my right hand. That's the only way I could tolerate the toxic spray that was coming out of my... What does that have to do with inflation, by the way? I don't know. But here's another question that's not to do with inflation. Why is it sometimes the bigger the car, the tinier the woman behind the wheel? You ever notice that? Well, I would say the man. I would say that's much more the case with the man. You know what? You want that old line, small... Whatever, large car. Okay, we're dating ourselves, but you know who said that? Who? Marjorie Clapperud. That was one of her she best did? lines. Yeah, she used to, she ran for lieutenant governor a million years Great ago. She was a real hot ticket up on Beacon Hill. Big car, small, whatever. She's doing great event stuff with her husband, by the yeah, way, she Marjorie is. Clapperud. Stephen Taunton, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for calling. Hi. Hi. How you doing? Uh, for me, it's two areas. Uh, we don't. Uh, we're retired, so we don't drive much. But well. heating oil <laughs> is five fifty every five weeks. We have an older house that's not exactly uh, the best efficient. So five fifty every uh, every yeah. five weeks kills us. And yeah. once in a while, I like to treat myself to a ribeye steak. Not too often, but I like to do it. And I go in there and I pay that twelve ninety nine. I went in the other day nineteen ninety nine. Oh, that's a lot. Of money. That is a, a lot of yeah, money. Yeah, Steve, you raise a great point though. They're talking about fuel in general in this story. Uh, electricity through the roof. Gas through the roof, oil through the roof. So Natural all- gas is totally through. Well, oil, essentially all utility stuff or yeah. is just totally out there. Right. Steve, thank you. Uh, uh, I'm with you on the revised We excuse the R though. word because we like Steve. So Every once, I know. We're not supposed to say that anymore. Well, I, we don't. Every that. once in a while, what? Jim, a ribeye steak. But you, don't eat, you don't eat much. You don't eat much. I don't, but I know people like ribeye steak. I mean, I'm, I don't I don't want to do ads for a particular place, but he's right about prices. I actually follow those kinds. Of, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a supermarket denizen kind of guy. <laughs> I am. Market Basket's got the best. I mean, what, what are you, what's so funny about no, that? It's just By funny. the way, in a time of great inflation, you have to be a comparative shopper. You Jim would Browdy, know comparative shopping I wouldn't, if you fell over I don't. Over I have no idea. I have really? no idea. I just know some places are more expensive than other places. I have no idea what anything Who was costs. the presidential candidate? Was it George, the elder Bush, Bush who had no idea how yeah, much anything you know cost? What? That's what? when I was broke, and everybody made fun of me for not knowing how much milk cost. Yeah. That, that, was it those, milk? I guess it was yes, a gallon of milk. Those are days yeah. when I didn't have any money, yeah. uh, and uh, I still didn't know what milk cost. So it's just kind of some people know what things cost, some people don't. But here it is, Jim Browdy, hot dog expert at Supermarket Denison. <laughs> there you go. What, what's your point, Marjorie? <laughs> what's your point? I just think it's yeah. funny. By the way, I would prefer to be an expert at something <laughs> than, you know what I mean? <laughs> By the way, what's the name of that show where you're supposed to, game show, it's been on like 100 years, where you're supposed to guess how much something cost? Oh, Price is Right. Price is Right. Let me tell you, is that still on the air? I have no idea. I think so. Yeah, I think it is. Let me tell you something. I could win every dishwasher, every, there is, I know the price of 
everything. When I, I say no everything, idea. I mean everything. I have no idea. Christina and Randolph, you're next on Boston Public Radio. We're talking about the impact inflation, historically, uh, uh, in, uh, historic inflation is having in your life. Hello, Christina. Hi. Hi. Uh, long time, first time. Another one. Thank um, you. Yeah. You know, I've never joined any of those um, rewards clubs mm-hmm. with, at the grocery store. Yeah. But I recently joined one because of the cost, high cost of food. Yeah. And I'm saving a bundle. It helps. I, I wish I'd done it along before. I On my last grocery shop, I saved 30%. Wow. So, and, yeah. I mean, can I say the store? Sure. Of course you can. It's Shaw's. Yeah, I have one of those star market, th- star and show is the same deal. I have one of those star market deals thing, too. Where you just type in your phone number. So it's a big deal. I agree with you. You can save a ton. of. It feels good, doesn't it, particularly in these times, Christina? Well, it does, you know, because I really, you know, I need the help. I And, you know, I have to say, I thank my dad for this. I'm one of ten. Whoa. And he was all... He, yeah. He um he did a lot of the shopping and yeah. you know we were raised you know you you buy on sale and you eat what's on sale and you use your coupons and now you know so I've always done that but um you know this rewards program at Shaw's they really do That's a great. fabulous job. Okay, maybe I should start going to Shaw's. Christina, yeah. thanks for your first call. Another <laughs> great first call. Thank you very much. By the way, let's be honest. Is there anything better than a discount? I mean, can we can we just spend a minute before we take a break? In terms of visceral, is visceral satisfaction? Or, that's yes, a term, yes, right? yes. In absolutely. terms of visceral satisfaction, no, it's huge. Is there it's very anything exciting. like? And by the way, the only thing better is when you're surprised. Now, I do a lot of intentional shopping, as you know. I know what I'm going yep. for, what the prices are, comparative prices, unlike some other people, kind of thing. That's right. I'm always surprised. But when you're surprised, when yep. you when they do the little uh, scan thing, oh yeah, and it's five dollars and ninety nine cents, and they take off like a dollar twenty. Do you not feel? <laughs> Like it's like a new person. I feel like a yep. totally new person. Or you get buy one get one fifty percent off. You have oh. to buy two, no matter if you don't need the two or not. You buy the, buy the two thing. I don't notice I'm making a lot of. You know, I have a Whole Foods like like two doors from do. my house, I know you do, yeah. so I regularly go there and get yeah. ripped off. Jeff Bezos be not, must not be paying those people because the lines have become unbearably long. At at I um, mean, because there are not a lot of workers <clears throat> there. Yeah, there are not yeah, a lot. Of, yeah. There are a lot a lot of cashiers, so yeah. it's really it's really sometimes pointless to go there. Um, but I, I don't notice that when you get you know your Prime member, mm-hmm. which I shouldn't be, of course, because I shouldn't be buying from Amazon, but I am not. a Prime member. Yeah. I don't see much of a discount there at the Whole Foods either. Well, it depends you know? on the, you have to be, again, you have yeah. to be selective shopping, I'm which you don't suspicious. do. I'm just suspicious. I'm very suspicious. You really, you have to be much more, uh, like, intentional in uh, in your shopping. Okay. You really do. All right. Well, thank you very much for that information, Jim. You're we're going to keep talking about this after a quick break. You're listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Bradley. She is Mardrigan, who will not tell us where she was yesterday, which I think speaks volumes. We're talking about inflation. As you know, the rate that was announced this morning, 7.5% over last year, highest in 40 years. And we're asking you to translate numbers into what impact it's having on your life, your buying behavior, and whether it'll have an impact, as a lot of analysts think, on who you vote for come uh, November. Now, uh, R- Richard points out that if we really um, – there was a short video on chicken producers. Mm-hmm. And if chicken was really raised correctly, humanely, it would cost $6 a pound, Jim. 
Can I tell you something? And uh, I, I would uh, when I well actually I shouldn't because I was going to say I would pay the six dollars a pound, but of course because I've seen some of those videos. Mm-hmm. But the flip side is what I would say to me just now is if you care so much about the welfare of the chicken, why eating the damn chicken? And that's a very good question. Uh, that's a very no good answer. question. And Andrew says he would give anything to see Jim Browdy in a very fashionable supermarket sweep sweatshirt and sweatpants strutting his stuff. On national television. Can I, can I explain something? Because uh, uh, you have uh, intentionally, obviously, created <laughs> as much negative uh, imagery about me as you can because you get like this. Is that, you get as much joy. I have not worn sweatpants in, okay. I would say, a decade. Okay. I wear a sweat. I'm not explaining. Can I explain what I'm I wear a sweatshirt quite regularly, including the Market fetching. Basket most yep, Saturday mornings. But I, know, I didn't say it was fetching. Spots but on it. In any case, they're not I, I it's another thing that I don't like. I hate sweat, and I'm serious. Sweatshirts that have spots on them, and so I do not. I do okay. not wear those either. That's his story. Why do you get off on this? This it's like the big lie with you, you and Trump. Hey, why should be the only one having fun? You know what Mike, I'm saying, Jim? In Watertown, you're on Boston Public Radio. Thank you much for calling. Hi. Hey, how's it going, Jim? And Excellent. Audrey, I, just, I just love your show. Thanks. Thank you. You're very nice. What's up? Yeah. Um, anyway, you know, I just find that the, uh, the cost of uh, building materials and stuff like that. Forgot about that. Just going through the roof, you know. Uh, you go to Home Depot or something like that, and, um, you know, the prices for lumber, um, it, it's, it's, it's more than doubled, you know. Yeah. Are you in the business? Uh, yeah, I'm just a local handyman. I usually do a lot of work at Arlington and stuff. So uh, has the, so obviously you have to raise prices. How are your customers feeling about that? Well, you know they understand to some extent. Uh, you know, uh, with lumber, they definitely understand with lumber. I I have uh, raised my rates. Um, I have been very gradual about it. Uh-huh. But um, you know, um, people are as tolerant as that as you would expect, only to some extent. You know. Yeah, as much as he can handle. And obviously, they probably have a relationship with you, which may cushion the blow. Mike, thank you for sharing that. I forgot building materials is a very big deal. I'm glad you brought that up. I've read about that. Yeah, huge. Yeah. Yep. 877-301-8970 is the number, bprwgbh.org. We're talking about inflation, which is through the roof. The worst it's been in, what, 40 years, I think? 40 years, 40 years. And um, how it's impacting your, your life. Rebecca from Spencer, thank you for calling. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, how are you guys? We're good. Thank you for calling. Thanks. I'm a huge fan. First call time caller. <laughs> I l- we love that, Thank Rebecca. You. Thank you for both. <laughs> What's up? So I was just calling to talk about the inflation. I have two um, young kids under three, and it has been so hard just to buy groceries lately. The cost of bread, eggs, milk, everything. It's been, like, I think it's probably doubled our weekly grocery. Really? Expense. So how do you yeah. how do you deal with that? I mean, what changes? If what do you do uh, when you confront that and you got to feed the kidlets? What do you do? Yeah, we just um, buy a lot more um, store brand stuff, and you know, just cut back a little bit. Not, not so many strawberries, <laughs> maybe more bananas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, someone's just sent me an email saying a pint of strawberries cost $12. No, no. I think that was correct. Maybe, you know, like at the Formaggio, or I shouldn't even say, but I mean, they have high end kind of stuff. I don't, I don't I think know. that. So, is that I Rebecca? I can hear in your voice. Is this, in addition to the financial cost, does it take a toll on you? 
Yeah, I mean, it's pretty stressful. You want to do the best for your kids. Exactly. But again, it's everything. We just had to buy oil again today. We ran out of oil. We had just gotten it. It's so expensive. Um, yeah, it's taken a toll. My poor husband's still working from home with the kids there. We had to stop sending our son to daycare because we had to cut back. Oh, my on God. Everything. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. Well, that was a horrible and great call all at once, Rebecca. Call us again soon. Thank you. That I mean, that's a real impact kind of story in a family's life. That's a big deal. And young kids kind of thing is really is really a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean having young kids. I mean dealing with the costs of all this kind of stuff when your kids are young. And also, as she said, they're the last place you want to make sacrifices because obviously everybody wants to do what's best for their kids and make them happiest. So, in any case. Blake from Falmouth, thank you for calling. Hello, Blake. Hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. Long time, first time. Another oh, great. one. Thank Hello you. Hello there. What's up? Hey. Uh, not. So, um, in my kind of personal budgeting, um, I haven't noticed inflation that much because I haven't paid student loans in two years. Um, oh. And I'm pretty sensitive to that coming back probably in a couple months. And, you know, in my case, that's like, you know, five, six hundred bucks a month that, uh, you know, kind of makes inflation looks like peanuts to me. And that's sort of where uh, where my vote is going to be hinging on, I think, this uh, this September. It, well, I mean, this September, you mean election wise? November, November. Yeah, yeah, yeah. November. You know, but I'm interested in that Are you because I, I, Biden has not done a great job at a whole load of fronts. But I think. How are the Republicans going to help? Because you think that it was better under Trump, and so that they're going to help. I mean, no, I, get, I, don't I, think I guess it was better under Trump. I just think well, inflation um, was a lot better you know, under Trump, right? I, I guess so, but you know, inflation you know cost me as a single person maybe like another you know hundred hundred ten dollars a month at the most. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, just in consumer products, but you know, just with student loans as a personal budgeting thing, I'm going to have to make cuts from somewhere. Yeah, but I guess I, I wonder when people say that this is going to hurt Biden and his, and his approval ratings are way down. Inflation is obviously costing him a, a lot. I think a lot of things are costing him a lot. But I just wonder what people think that irrational people think that they're going to get from the GOP. Well, That's what I, bet, I wonder. But maybe they want to change. I'm not advocating for this, but sometimes people say the current man or woman is not satisfying right. my needs. Let's try somebody else, even if they did the analysis you think they right. should do. But who's gonna, they might conclude that the somebody else isn't going to fix it. But who's going to do that? Ron DeSantis, the guy from Florida? Blake, thank you for your call, you by the way. You're, we appreciate it. Well, you know, but Marjorie, you and I have had this debate mm-hmm. oh, oh, so often. It's insane. So when the Republicans, when you say the Democrats are saying they did X and Y, you act well, like the Repu- been- excuse me, you act like the Republicans are going to say, "Oh, you got me guilty." You know what they're going to say? I'm going to bring down the price of gas. Right. I'm going to bring down the price of milk. I'm going to bring down the price of used cars. Okay, good. Then I'll vote for you. Oh, wait a second, I forgot to ask you. How are you going to do that? And you haven't. I mean, that's you know. In any case, I guess so. But when you have the when you have the other side of that, you have. I'm going to make sure you only pay seven percent of your uh, your salary on child care. Did he do I'm that? Gonna, no, I can't remember. No, but 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 the other thing we should point out is how much does the president have to do with inflation? Well, very little. And right? inflation was colossally low. Would the president be claiming credit for keeping it low? Yes. Or would he say I really have nothing to do with this? I mean, the reality is when you're the boss, yep. whether you're Donald Trump or Joe Biden, what happens on your watch is visited on you for good or bad. I mean, that's. The nature of the beast. Sarah, you're somewhere in Massachusetts, and you're on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for the call. Hi. 
Hi, I'm from Holden, Massachusetts. Oh, good. Nice to hear from you. Yeah, um, I have five kids, and it's you know Yikes. we try to eat at home and make homemade meals as much as possible. But I love your show. Everything you talk <laughs> about is very relevant. Last Thanks. night, my son and a friend of his were volunteering at their high school, and then they had to go to facing an acquire in Worcester, and I picked them up some subs, and it was $25 to feed two teenage boys some oh sandwiches, and it was like, maybe a little more than that with a tip, and it was just at a pizza place, and, you know, I could have gone to McDonald's, that would have been cheaper, but I tried to be a little healthier, and um, I don't know, I woke up this morning brainstorming. How wow. Marjorie, you should see Marjorie's Sarah, it was, face. It, so you're talking like maybe 10 bucks a submarine sandwich. I think yeah, they were nine ninety nine. Yeah, yes. and then one of them added cheese, and then with a tip, and they didn't even get drinks. I was like, "You guys have water bottles, great, you know." And they're they're good boys. I love them, and <laughs> you know, I don't mind paying it. And I, you know, my husband and I are middle class, but I feel like, geez, I to take my family of seven out to dinner, which we have hardly even done oh. in the pandemic. Um, it would be so expensive. It's ridiculous <laughs> but well you know this um, is the know, this is the, the times we do it but yeah. this is the big dilemma though for a lot of things because we are used to getting things pretty cheap i mean if you you're a mother of five kids remember when my kids were little i bought a lot of stuff at old navy which was kind of not a very good thing to do because yeah. of the child labor that was going on producing yeah. the things and so it's kind of like and we've talked a million times about how our restaurant workers are paid so little that they can barely you know they have to work two jobs and all that kind of stuff so it's a it's a it's a dilemma. You know, do you want to restaurant yeah. workers to make more? But that means it's going to cost you a lot more to go out. Do you want to uh, buy yeah, but American? Let's assume Sarah wants restaurant workers to make more. She and her husband have to pay for seven people to go to that restaurant well, it's, it's where a, the prices yeah. have gone up because they want to pay their workers more. I mean, right. it is a real but it's a, it's a dilemma, Sarah. You know, how do you balance that? I don't know. Yeah, and, you know, my husband and I, we try to get out every once in a while. But I think the last time we went out, a cocktail was like $14, you know, which isn't unreasonable. And we're not, you know, I'll have one cocktail. I'm I'm not going to splurge more than that at a restaurant. I could make one at home much cheaper. Sarah, can I tell you you something? Sarah, Sarah, if I had five kids and a cocktail was $114, (laughs) I'd be buying it. Anyway, I admire you, Sarah, and we wish you luck, and we're or really glad you called. You just put a little put a little flask in your pocketbook, you know, and t- take it out at the appropriate time. Can you imagine? You had three. I have two. Yeah. I mean, you have three. Can you imagine five children in the middle of this? Can you imagine? No, I think that'd be a lot of. Uh... And she had humor in her voice, despite the story that she was telling us about the pre- twenty five dollars for two subs. I mean. Ken says he drives in and out of the city every day, 2019, paying 200 bucks a month. Now he's paying $650. It's forced him, Jim, tragically, to cut back on his hot dog budget. Ah, is that what he said? Or you making... That's what he said. Oh, that's funny. Ken, thank you very much. Okay, coming up, uh, we're going to talk to our uh, education expert, uh, Paul Revel, about all news and education. Uh, kind of a big scandal over at Harvard University. Brendan Caselius has left the Boston Public Schools. We're going to talk about masks being taken off in schools here and around the country. All that next with Paul Revel. You're listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Mardrigan here to bring us up to speed on the state of schools here at home and elsewhere is Paul Revel. Paul is the former Secretary of Education and a professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education. We also runs the Education Redesign Lab. His latest book, it's co-authored with Lynn Sachs, is called Collaborative Action for Equity and Opportunity, a Practical Guide for School and Community Leaders. Good morning, Paul Revel. Good morning, Jim and Marjorie. Hey, there. hey, great to talk to you, Paul Revel. Uh, so, so Governor Baker has uh, says we're going to get rid of the mask mandate for K through twelve schools at the end of this month, February twenty eighth, and this is going on, of course, in other uh, northeastern states that have done quite well during the pandemic, just in terms of things going down and high vaccination rates. New York, Connecticut, uh, I think New Jersey as well. So, is this the right move? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of. Uh... There's a lot of expert testimony on both sides of this uh, decision, and uh, it's an indication that, you know, we, we are evolving and we're evolving away from some of the more um, significant measures we did to prevent the spread of the disease. And uh, so I, I, I think there are some very good reasons um, relative to uh, uh, helping students uh, communicate better, connect better with one another, with teachers, to um, you know, learn language for that matter, for those who were English language learners or those who may have uh, various forms of language uh, challenges. Um, you know, I think on the whole, it's a good thing. It's moving in the right direction, but we're we're slowly turning that corner and it's going to be controversial for a while because there are a number of parents and students who still feel like um, they need this protection. I think there are others who psychologically just feel like, you know, this is such an unknown scenario we're in with this disease that keeps popping up in different forms that uh, that the mask is sort of a symbol of being vigilant and doing something about it. But uh, it, overall, it feels to me like the, the whole zeitgeist of the culture is moving in the direction of uh, relieving some of the uh, more stringent measures that we've had. And so I think this is probably the right thing because, of course, this decision allows local communities and schools to make their own decisions about what they want to do in accordance with whatever uh, disease factors that they want to look at and indicators they want to look at in their local communities. Now, this will be hard for local officials, and many of them would just soon have the the cover of a state mandate exactly, so that they don't have to make the decision and have the controversy come to roost in, in school administration or school boards across the Commonwealth. But that's what's going to happen next. We're going to have different communities respond differently depending upon their constituents and the health conditions. Yeah, I know you're not a public health guy, but you are an education guy. If you were secretary of education and you had to pick a date, you, you concluded it's time to relieve the, remove the the statewide mandate. Would you do it on the day back from February vacation? I mean, maybe I became obsessed on this last night. And I'm saying to myself, the time that a lot of kids are going to be going places and connecting with people that they wouldn't otherwise do is probably not the day you return from that would not be the day I would pick to uh, say no mass. Is Am I off base or no? No, I think that's a consideration. Um, I, you know, I... There's there's no ideal time to do it. Um, and again, any local jurisdiction um, can extend it if no, they that's have true. That's true. Uh, so I'm, you know, I, it, there's just so many factors on this, Jim. It's it's another example of one of these kinds of decisions that makes educational leadership so difficult at this point because there are no real, you know, there are no real absolute indicators yeah. that you should do one thing or the other. And no matter what you do, a lot of people aren't going to like it. 
And, uh, and so I think that's where we are, but we're in a slow evolution. And I think we're moving in the direction of less rather than more right now. You know, uh, I want to talk to you for a little bit about about book bans. You know, I keep thinking like it's like we're regressing here. I think it was 19, what, 22 or 25 or something when the Scopes trial, you know, when the teacher was prosecuted for teaching about evolution. <laughs> We've all thought that was behind us. Well, now apparently in some towns uh, that are very, very conservative in some states like Wyoming, a county prosecutor considered criminal charges against people in the library for stocking books like sex is a funny word and this book is gay. They're very upset about anything having to do with uh, anything uh, with gender identity or sexual sexual identity and anything to do with honest teaching about race. The 1619 Project, other places want to ban. That's the the New York Times uh, project about uh, tracing the history of of slavery uh, from Africa to the United States. So what do you make of this? I should say, and we were talking about this before, that the left has done some banning too. We had a few years ago, remember, uh, they wanted to ban West Side Story and Amherst because uh, that was thought to be racist against Puerto Ricans and some people want to ban To Kill a Mockingbird, another classic. Uh, Those are people from the left. But this seems to be a pretty wholesale uh, criminal uh, attack on librarians. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that it does cut both ways, but it does seem to be we're having an extreme outburst on the right end of the political spectrum uh, to try and encroach on the discretion of educators in local communities and at the state level, you know, to make decisions about curriculum and instruction. I, I think it's it's a frightening development. I was on the phone yesterday with a bunch of superintendents from around the country. One from the state of Kentucky was mentioning recent legislation. I'm not sure what stage it's at, but it's it it had been approved at some level um, to um, ban the teaching of or discussion of current events in classrooms in that state. Can you imagine teaching a, a course on social studies and you can't talk about current events? But <laughs> there was another provision that uh, I shouldn't be uh, laughing. Was, it's not so funny. I know. So okay. I know. There was another another uh, uh, provision that said if you're going to teach history. You have to teach both sides of the issue uh, as though every issue had only two sides and uh, and that we should uh, delve deeply to think of uh, both sides of the question of slavery or the Holocaust, for example. So it's alarming that this is going on. And I, I take it, number one, I mean, there was a good piece in The New York Times recently that said book banning is only the tip of the iceberg kind of thing that um, really we're, what we're seeing is kind of a frontal assault on public education generally. Right. Yes, in yes. The, in the, the COVID. And we're starting to see something that we always, res- we were certainly resisted when I was secretary of education and I think is a bad idea generally, which is when you have uh, state legislatures uh, trying to make, um, you know, sort of nuanced decisions about curriculum and instruction, it's never a good place to be in. And right now we're, we're experiencing a sort of political wave of backlash that's coming down on the schools. It's hamstringing the schools in terms of what they do. It's making education a much less attractive profession, which is, 
you know, another issue that we've got to cope with generally in this, in the midst of this uh, staff shortage that we have, that isn't just a short-term thing, it's a long-term thing. And as so a chilling effect on bold oh, teaching, Oh, yeah. Listen too. to this. Listen to this quote from this woman from the uh, Library Association talking about just the threat of having to defend yourself against charges if you're a teacher or an educator. She said, suppose you live in a community where you've been for 28 years. You know, you've been a teacher there. You've made your home there. You've brought up your family there. But all of a sudden, you might be charged with the crime of pandering obscenity. And you've hoped to live in that community forever. I mean, I think that captures the fear people might be under it if they can be charged criminally. No, exactly. And it, it uh, you know, it goes beyond that, the intimidation of members of the school board, right. exactly. uh, you know, the degree of controversy. If you run for elected office, if you don't vote the right way that certain people want to, then the threat implicit or explicit of violence to you and your family. I mean, it's really disrupting the whole idea of what we've historically thought about as, as public education. And I don't know, the larger agenda seems to be um, to... Uh, to so sufficiently constrain and hamstring it that it's really not able to function at a level in which the public would have confidence and therefore the uh, public commitment to public education breaks down and we move into a situation where it's every family for themselves, which I think would be a disaster for this country. By the way, before we move on to uh, yet another superintendent bites the dust in Boston, our earlier discussion about masks, Shirley Leung will be with us later is listening. Yeah. She texts me. Her 11-year-old was telling me about all the pros and cons and how it disproportionately hurts young elementary kids who need to learn how to read social facial clues. And Shirley says, I'm like, who are you? How do you know this stuff? Which I thought was pretty great. Yeah. So and one last thing about this book. Well, that's we a good move. question, and it's a reasonable concern. And, and so, particularly the youngest ones are at least at risk. So yeah. uh, that's a good place to start. we, we got to move on to the next thing. But I just want to point out, it, the book bans do seem kind of ridiculous in the age of the Internet because, really, you could get anything you want if you wanted to online. So it, it's kind of a futile attempt in any so case. So Brenda it, Caselius yeah. says she's gone. Here's part of what she said about her resignation uh, the other day, Paul. Nothing's okay. pushing me out the door. I'm still here for five months, uh, rolling up my sleeves, getting this work done each and every day. Now, the second half is true. I'm still here for five months, rolling up my sleeves, getting this work done each and every day. The nothing's pushing me out the door is not true. Uh, is it? I mean, it's pretty clear that even though Mayor Wu is denying it too, and she's with us next Wednesday, by the way, so I'm sure we'll talk about it. Uh, I'm assuming she's leaving because Mayor Wu says she wants to pick her own person. Isn't that pretty obvious? Well, what, what I know about what preceded this, which is limited, is that it was, you know, it was a conversation between the superintendent, the chair of the school committee, and the mayor, you know, about the future of, of public education in Boston and, uh, and where the mayor wanted to go, who'd be best suited to lead, uh, whether or not the, the superintendent was, uh, you know, who's been through this uh, kind of embattled, turbulent time of COVID and a whole bunch of other issues, I, my my understanding is the is the mayor is uh, uh, very appreciative of the leadership that the uh, that the superintendent has provided and they they get along well and she uh, so why is she leaving? Same, well, I mean, I th I think the uh, you know in the end it would probably be safe to assume that you have a new mayor and it's not uncommon for a new mayor, particularly if there's some level of mayoral control, which there is in Boston wants ultimately to uh, to have a superintendent that's well aligned where with where she wants to take the district. So uh, I'm sure that was an element in the conversation. The school committee has its own opinions about where it wants to go. So I don't know exactly 
how it came down, but it, it from my conversations with some of the principals in it, it seemed to be something that was mutually agreeable. It's not a verdict on this particular superintendent and how she's done, but it's a taking into account her needs and what she sees as her future, taking into account what the mayor wants to do and where she wants to head and where what the school. But how do you fix a school system that has a new superintendent every, every 10 years. minutes? I mean, yeah. you know, no, I know. If, and I, yeah, go I, ahead. You know, and, and that may have been a consideration, uh, Jim and Margie. I mean, it, it may be that the mayor uh, had decided, you know, she's she's going to be in for the long haul. She wants a superintendent who's in for the long mm-hmm. haul. This is a superintendent who's, you know, I I would think exhausted from the uh, experience of of riding through this uh, COVID crisis and who knows how long she wanted to stay. So I don't know. I'm not privy to what would actually happen there, but I, but you know, it, it was a much more positive process than we had the last time we had a shift in superintendents. Yeah. And I, I think the the only other thing I'd say to what you just said is. The, the superintendent's not a miracle worker. No individual by themselves is going to work magic here as much as all of us would like COVID to go away and achievement gaps to close and the, the uh, central office to be humming and great relationships with the, the district schools and the, uh, and the community and so forth. Nobody's going to be um, a miracle worker. And as we look for a superintendent, we've got to be realistic and at the same time, you know, have a view to uh, what went well and not so well in the past a few years of turbulence in that office and try and make a decision for the long term. But I don't even see how we get a semi-miracle worker in Boston, Paul, because we have to parade all the candidates uh, in front of X, Y, and Z groups, which means that those candidates have to announce to their old school or their current employer that they're looking for a new job. I just don't see how that can ever work. And when we well, had, as you know, I, I, uh, I've long been an advocate for changing the open meeting law with regard to appointments for the superintendency and our public college presidents, because uh, we regularly, when I was secretary of education, had search consultants who do this work nationally, who just say Massachusetts is at a distinct disadvantage in attracting top talent because of that provision that you just mentioned that requires the name of finalists to be disclosed. And uh, and that's that's a negative for anybody who's a sitting superintendent with their own school board or a sitting college president with their own board. So how so how does that uh, jive with Mayor Wu's talking about constantly having, you know, parents involved, open process, all that kind of stuff? It seems like the process is doomed here before it even begins, because how can parents even tell, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. There's, there's ways of managing that, Marjorie. I mean, I think that um, you can get a lot of input in terms of what the criteria are and how the public would advise those making the decision on the school committee and, and the mayor in terms of her perspective, what sort of criteria they ought to be looking for, what kind of person they ought to be looking for, what kind of agenda they're looking for. But that's not the same thing as necessarily having to have a long string. I don't, I don't think Boston has the time, really, for one of these year-long uh, processes of selecting a new superintendent. We, uh, you know, we're in a crisis situation still, and we're just emerging now into a new phase of this. We need somebody who can come in almost immediately upon the departure of this superintendent and hit the ground running. So I think that's got to be a consideration in the process. So we need an expedited process and a process in which, you know, the decision makers are going to have the uh, the flexibility to move forward fairly quickly. You know, they have some discretion about how many finalists they bring forward. Um, and so it's not impossible for a, a school committee to bring forward a single finalist or for, 
you know, or for there to be a fairly clear set of preferences, um, you know, with regard to some of the conversations that happen with candidates along the way, uh, so that a candidate uh, might consider coming if they felt that they were, uh, you know, far and away the most qualified person and uh, and likely to get the the position. So, Paul, I, I Paul, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but we're running out of time here, and I wanted to get to this uh, uh, story over there at Harvard University about the professor. You did a show on it last night, so why don't you uh, proceed? Yeah, Jim? I mean, every, I assume everybody's read about this. Is uh, I had two of the three plaintiffs on last night, graduate students in anthropology. Uh, there are three graduate students who are suing uh, Harvard, saying they failed to protect them and keep them safe in the face of an allegation that a noted anthropology professor, this guy Komarov, uh, physically groped off and on for years, one of the three, uh, when she was talking about going to Africa for part of her studies. Uh, he apparently, in very graphic fashion, talked about how she was going to be raped and murdered and that sort of thing. When her two fellow graduate students heard about it and mentioned it to Harvard and other professors, they alleged there was threatened retaliation, well, actual retaliation uh, uh, against them. And, you know, as serious as the story is on its face, and I know you work at Harvard, so apologies for putting you on the spot. The more I read about this in the Crimson and in the Boston Globe to read two other major leaders in the anthropology department had similar problems. This Komarov had a history, uh, allegedly, of uh, this kind of treatment of uh, women's students when he was hired from the University of Chicago. Uh, this is a real – this is – and I found the, uh, two, the two women were with me and their lawyer. I found it to be incredibly, terribly credible. This is a really damaging thing for Harvard, and it seems to me it should be. Am, am I missing something? Oh, and by the way, I should, the worst part of this to me – is the th worst part, 38 very prominent professors, including Jill Lepore, Henry Gates, without examining all the facts, originally came to the defense of Komarov. And then when they finally found out what was really alleged here, the vast majority of them have backed off and apologized. What's your reaction to this thing, Paul Revel? Well, I mean, it, it's a travesty. Um, it, it obviously has to be investigated and the charges have to be validated. I have no inside knowledge whatsoever about this. It happens in an area of the university in which I'm not involved. But Lucky for it, you. It, it seems to me that uh, you know a whole bunch of faculty have jumped the gun. They were reacting to a particular situation about advice that was given to a student about travel, and they thought that the university was overreacting to that. Apparently, they were unaware of this whole host of other charges that you've just... Well, they didn't even understand that charge because Komarov was saying, all I did was counselor, as, as any uh, mentor should, about the dangers, failing to leave out what she's alleging. And by the way, the university, its findings supposedly affirm this, that he's talking about her being raped and murdered in the most graphic fashion. And by the way, just one last thing here. We have very little time. Margaret Serwinski is one of the graduate students who's been right. retaliated against. And I asked her last night how she felt this is going to affect her career. Here's what she had to say. I think right now I feel as though I don't have a career in anthropology moving forward. Why do you, why do you say that? John Komarov's network, as we've seen from this letter, is extensive. It's in every major anthropology department in the world. And even with the backlash from this, there's still reason to believe that he has the ability to influence hiring decisions 
at, at campuses. We only have a few seconds. The high-profile professors, even if tarnished, do have great power over the lives and careers of these students, do they not? They do. Uh, however, I hope she's wrong. I, hope she's uh, I, wrong think too. The, I think the backlash here is going to be more uh, more significant than than maybe was uh, counted on initially. So I'd be surprised if there weren't significant damage to his reputation and therefore a diminution of his power to affect the future of people like that. I hope you're right, Paul Revel. Paul, thanks. Paul, thanks. Sorry, we got to go. All right. Be well. Thanks. Pa- Paul Thank Revers you. is former Secretary of Education and Professor at Harvard's Graduate School of Education, where he also runs the Education redesign lab up next former suffolk county sheriff andrew cabral you're listening to boston public radio ahead on boston public radio andrew cabral joins us on what may be a breakthrough at mgh where apparently they found a legit way to determine if someone is driving while marijuana impaired then a married couple has just been charged with laundering $4.5 billion in cryptocurrency. Andy Yanaka will join us to explain how the hackers gain access to the digital currency. And what is cryptocurrency anyway? The rise and fall of Peloton. Boston Globe business columnist Shirley Young will join us on that and the growing number of companies offering paid leave for miscarriages. Then MIT economist John Gruber on the economics of roses for Valentine's Day. That and more ahead, Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Our number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7, GPH, Logan, Jim. You know what we haven't discussed in great depth? What? Spring is here. I mean, really, <laughs> it is like three days of spring. How great is that? Do you I loving know. this? Well, yeah, I guess so. What do you mean? Well, it's climate change, which I, you know, yeah. worries me a lot. Well, it was not like a pro-climate change kind of comment. It okay. was like it is what it is. It is so what it I'll is, Jim. The crocuses will be up soon, Crocodile. later this afternoon. In any case. Is it croc I don't know. I'm not sure. Neither am I. Welcome back. Oh, you said welcome back, didn't you? So did. joining us on the line, I got all discombobulated. For this week's edition of Law & Order is Andrew Cabral. Andrew is the former Suffolk County Sheriff, former Secretary of Public Safety, and most relevant to our first topic today, the CEO of the cannabis company, Ascend. Hello, Andrew Cabral. Well, hello, Jim. Hello, Marjorie. Well, hello. To hello. You. So uh, we talked to you before about something that seemed a little perilous to having these supposed expert cops decide at roadside whether somebody's stoned or not stoned. DREs, drug recognition yeah. experts. Yeah, I think a lot allegedly. of us are very suspicious of how well that could work. Now, I guess MGH, Mass General, they're scientists there. We, we're all going to put on lead skull caps and they're going to shine a light into our brain. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. <laughs> That's going to ruin my hair. That's accurate. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's sort of what this this looks like. But, you know, I'm going to start off by saying people may not realize this, but people have been getting arrested for uh, OUI drugs. Now, that can be cannabis, that can be, you know, opioids or whatever. All this time, it's not like this is a new crime that people are being arrested for. People are routinely arrested, uh, probably for alcohol, far more. But I've, over the course of my career as a prosecutor, so many cases charged as OUI drugs. And 
often there wouldn't even necessarily be any testing done at all to determine the level of the drug in the system. So when cannabis wasn't legal, you know, an officer, uh, you know, a report might read that there was, um, you know, um, evidence of marijuana inside the car. And then an observation kind of thing? And then an observation. Yeah, and then then there would be field sobriety tests, but you wouldn't get back if even if there was a breathalyzer, it would only come back obviously for the alcohol. That's what it's for, not for the other thing. And that would often not be an impediment to that person being found guilty of OUI drugs along with OUI alcohol. It was. It was. So I'm just. I'm only saying that to say that. uh, Observational evidence of impairment has always been admissible. Yeah, uh, in 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 courts, and you know, but it, but obviously, it's it's subject to more of a challenge, probably than uh, you know, scientifically accepted results like a breathalyzer. So anyway, um, MGH uh, research uh, folks have come up with uh, something that they say measures actual impairment versus mere ingestion yeah. of THC. Um, because, uh, you know, a lot of the fault with uh, some of the things in the Clardy Law and some of the other things that have been suggested, it was almost a, it was almost a um, you know, uh, if this, then that. In other words, if there is evidence that there has been consumption, if you can show that a person recently went and bought some and it's found in the car, um, then, you know, by definition, they are, they are guilty um, of it. MGH is basically saying that this isn't going to measure uh, the evidence of THC in someone's blood or saliva, which is what, you know, a breathalyzer does with alcohol. They really are talking about looking into the brain itself with the same sort of um, light-based imaging that is sort of used in MRIs, but it's a, um, obviously a portable and uh, much less unwieldy kind of a, a look into the brain. And they, they're doing this based on the study that measures oxygenated levels of oxygenated hemoglobin uh, in the brain. There, the theory is that, uh, you know, when you're uh, affected by THC, your brain works harder. Any time, you know, your, your, your body will rush oxygen to the site of uh, any place in your body that is, that is working harder. So it rushes more oxygen to the brain. And this particular gadget, which, yes, Marjorie, it does say, low-power LED bulbs mounted onto a skull cap and shined into the skull. I can't imagine that that's what's going to happen by the roadside. I just can't. I, they've got to come up with another way to do it. Yeah. But what I did notice is that they say this, the technology is similar to what's used already in smartwatches oh. and other fitness gadgets to measure your heart rate and your blood, ox, your blood oxygenation. So it's not like this is unheard of or unfamiliar. We yeah. already use devices that actually measure those things. Um, but here they're trying to measure uh, through the oxygenation in the blood the potential impact of the ingestion of THC. I th- I, it strikes me as a fairly complicated thing um, to have to measure, notwithstanding whatever the equipment looks like that they, that they might use. Right. Um, but at, le- at, the, at least they are searching for a, a more scientific and, uh, you know, and therefore much more likely to be accepted in a court of law 
uh, way to measure this and measure it fairly, not just because someone has ingested cannabis, which is legal, but to determine whether or not there's any actual impairment there. And, and but, uh, the thing that Marjorie was raising, you're responding to, I don't think the helmet is that big a deal. As you may know, Marjorie knows, I believe people should drive with helmets <laughs> for safety so they should already have it on. So it really wouldn't be a, you know, by the way, we should say, well, I, I know, well, I'm sure all three of us think it'd be great if uh, any credible, reliable tool that could test <clears throat> impairment while you're driving is an important tool to have, particularly for marijuana when you don't have one. Uh, the data to date from cops themselves is the overwhelming uh, problem is alcohol. A secondary problem may be opioid-related yeah. drugs, but that marijuana is a small uh, 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 segment, a segment that needs to be addressed, Very, but a small yeah. segment nevertheless. I think it's yeah, important for and people I don't to think, uh, I don't think the governor's bill is, is – is, I can't imagine it's going to get anywhere because it seems to be – you know, testing for something that may not at all mean you're impaired while you're driving, right? Well, it also creates... No, and it was sent to a study committee, so it's not... Oh, that's yeah, a, oh yeah. I didn't know yeah, that, though. That's so it's hard. That. Yeah. For those yeah. who don't know, a study committee uh, in, on vegan ill means it's never going to see the light of day, so uh, that's pretty significant. We're talking to Andrea Cabral. And what made the, the, the idea of these expert uh, cop analysts at the side of the road deciding whether or not you're high on marijuana. You know, the, the reason I think it was so terrible is that we already have uh, these huge racial biases in policing. Um, uh, two stories, which in, which the Globe reported on. Um, number one, um, apparently there isn't, and I'll be anxious to think, see what you think about this, this new report says there's not a support, there's no support for patterns of racial disparity in who gets pulled over. I don't believe that. I, I'm suspicious as well. But that definitely drivers of color were much more likely to be searched and um, and cited for whatever infraction they were pulled over for. What do you think? <laughs> okay, well... Are you suspicious too? <sighs> yeah, I'll yeah. definitely. I mean... It, uh, First of all, the study comes out of the Executive Office of Public Safety, which you know I used to be the secretary of, um, and the study is based on uh, information taken from the Registry of Motor Vehicles. So when a warning is issued, there is a paper trail. When a citation is issued, there is a paper trail, and you can tell from that citation whether or not it is a criminal citation or a civil citation, and obviously an arrest generates its own set of paperwork. So they based the study on what was reported to the registry. What that means is that they have no information about who is stopped and no citation that of any is, kind is issued. That is I, – I can't believe I didn't think of that when – that's the whole ball oh, game. Oh, obviously. I'm kidding. You, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm oh, kidding. Oh, you oh. are? No, you're not kidding, <laughs> yeah. are you? <laughs> no, I was joking. Oh, I you know, it sorry. really. I would notice something like that oh. because – I came out of EOPS, and because I'm looking at, um, so where did you where did you go to find out who was being stopped, and did you did you hit? You know that people get stopped, and nothing. There's never an oh. issue. There's never a warning or a citation. So how did you get at all of those other stops? So that was like an April Fool's kind of, of thing <laughs> in February. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, a I made bit. a fool of yeah. myself. Okay, okay. good. Okay. Continue. Okay. Okay. No, no. That's so. I, that's the first thing I noticed was that. You have no – nothing in this study accounts for the people who are pulled over 
and asked a series of questions and no citation is well, issued. Well, then it was true. Because they were pulled over because they didn't do anything. So it wasn't a fool. That is a huge hole no, in this thing. No, that's absolutely true. Well, how can they exactly con- Then how can they possibly conclude that there's no racial disparity in stops when they don't have a record of the damn stops? Well, that's why I chuckled when Marjorie oh, said, what do you think of this okay. study? Because because that, that jumped out at me, that there are... There have got to be stops. If you, if you just look at it anecdotally, you talk about the number of people who are able to tell you that they were pulled over, that they weren't cited for anything. Yeah. They were asked a bunch of questions. They had to produce their license and registration. Somebody was checking to see if the car was stolen or some other thing. But they were never told while they were pulled over. You know that those stops happen. So if you know that they happen, how are you accounting for them in a study before you say something like there's no disparity in uh, between the race of drivers who are pulled over, generally speaking. Right. So, I, you know, I had an issue with that and an issue even with the way that it was sort of, I don't necessarily blame the globe for the way the headline reads. It's, it's I think, an attempt to be sort of accurate. But I start from the perspective that you don't actually know whether or not there's any disparity because the only thing you mentioned is what leaves a paper trail. Uh, with the registry of motor vehicles, um, and that's assuming that everything the registry gets is accurate. So then, if you dig sort of a little bit deeper, what what is really and the reason I had a problem with the headline is because it sort of buries the lead. Yeah. The lead, even if you put aside that they may not be accounting for all of the stops, they're essentially saying, well, once the person is stopped, and it becomes clear who the they're person is. Exactly. The yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So the bottom line is that we should ignore both of these stories, except for the ones that say you're more likely to be cited and in trouble if you happen to be a driver of No, color. but by the way, I don't mean to obsess on this, but my reaction, and I know people should say you should read beyond the headline, the headline, in my opinion, I'm with you, was backwards. I mean, it basically said, don't worry, uh, oh, but do worry. The worry should have been first. It should have been drivers of color were more likely to be searched and cited the report finds no support for patterns of disparity on who's pulled over, even though you've po- poked a hole in that thing, too. So what what happens with this? I mean, this is pretty clear to me, even apart from your your again, the hole you poked in this. What what happens with this? It goes into a file and we never hear from it again. No, I think that, you know, it, it, it like every study. Um, regardless of what that study finds, there will be people who find that information useful to their purpose. And so this study will be cited, I'm sure. Um, I don't know where and I don't know by who, but I mean, the, the, you know, it'll be, it'll be used in some fashion. I, it's hard to tell, you know, uh, how much credibility it'll be given. Um, well, wait a second. Let, wait, wait. Other... Let's assume you were still Secretary of Public Safety and this report came out today. On the part where there's no dispute that drivers of color are more likely to be searched, cited, arrested, cuffed, etc., what do you do about it as secretary? Well, uh, first of all, I, I would have measured. I would have. I would have said if we don't have evidence of stop data from police files where the officer says, at least on the radio, that they're pulling someone mm. over, and most officers will say that because you never know what's going to happen. Uh, in a stop. Unless we have that, we don't really have a basis to do the study. So you probably, uh, you know, you wouldn't have a total number. But uh, to your point about uh, the ones that say that there are disparities once they're pulled over, this this information merely is added to the laundry list of studies that have found these disparities. I'm not even sure why this was done. There's plenty of information out there 
that shows what the disparities are. And, and so when you go to, and I'm not saying that EOPS wasn't well-intentioned in doing the study, but when you go to uh, the part of the story that talks about one of the reasons that they felt that this data, uh, even though it was just coming from the RMV, was uh, uh, reliable is because they analyzed it using a method called the veil of darkness which compares stops made in darkness to those made in daylight. And it's based on this idea that police officers are less likely to be able to determine a driver's race at night than during the day. I'm not quite sure where that comes from. It is generally harder to see things at night. Right. And I assume, you know, uh, it is harder to see inside of a, maybe it's based on the fact that it's harder to see inside a car at night. Mm-hmm. But, what that, but again, here's something else that's sort of left out. What is left out is that this research is being done after the hue and the cry over disparities in pulling. This, was, this is done specifically based on the hands-free um, the bill that says that you can't be on the phone you know, using your hands mm-hmm. on you know, the phone. There was a built-in study component to that bill. And that, the reason that that was in that bill was because there were definitely legislators who raised uh, you know, a hue and a cry about the disparities in uh, police stops. Didn't Byron Rushing, so when he was a state, of- didn't Byron Rushing hold up this bill for a long period of time uh, yeah. over that issue and ultimately over got it, right? Yeah, yeah, over the yeah. profiling thing, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But here's the thing. <laughs> if you're using the veil of darkness, um, police officers also know that passing drivers will be able to see them pull over people who are people of color. I notice it all the time mm-hmm. when I'm driving. At night, you're less likely to notice it yeah. because it's nighttime and you really point. are paying more attention to the road and keeping your car on the road and you might glance at something. But, but so the veil of darkness as a, as a, as a methodology doesn't, I don't think it says as much about uh, drivers who, what time of day it is, the drivers are pulled over uh, in terms of, you know, uh, identifying no racial disparity, as much as it says everyone is more aware that in the daytime everything yeah. is more public. You know so what's a terrible thing? So you have you, a couple of issues with this study. I was just going to say, you obviously feel really good about yeah. this study. Yeah. You, know, you, know, you know how it, it, it's come to the point now, I think, for a lot of people that when you see white cops pulling over black kids... You almost feel like you should stop and see what happens. I, I mean, you almost it's because you, you, I've become so distrustful, and that's a terrible thing to admit. Because I know there are a lot of good cops out there, but it just it just is really upsetting. I think to a lot of people because. Well, that's the worst part of it is that there are people who should be pulled over. Right. I mean, my God, the number of you know, potential killers that are found in the trunks of cars that are pulled over for traffic stops is just, is just astounding. Really? Are there a lot but of killers found people... in trunks? I didn't know that. No, no I mean, they, they, they actually serial killers have been caught uh, just the because trunks? they were pulled over because they were driving, uh, speeding or driving erratically, Uh-oh. which is astonishing. It's like you're a murderer and you're not thinking to yourself, maybe I should probably keep to the speed limit. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a very good point. You've got a dead yeah, body in the that's, trunk. No, that's good that's advice. Wise. If you're a serial killer listening to the show, <laughs> the former secretary of... Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Make sure you keep to, to the speed limit. Very, very good right. advice in all other ways, but, yes. But honestly, I, I mean, I think that, that that's part of the issue is that because we do focus on when we 
you know, believe or there's clearly evidence that there are these racial disparities. And, you know, we focus a lot on the things that police do wrong. And I'm sure it is demoralizing to police who are doing the right thing. And, and, it's, and also people make these assumptions that what we're saying is that nobody should ever be pulled over. No one should ever be held to account. What, we're, what people are really saying is that there needs to be fairness and yeah. some objectivity in that and that everybody should be treated the same. But um, I'm sure that it, you know, the, there, it must be terrible to be trying to do your job and genuinely pull somebody over because they should be pulled over and know that everybody, you know, a lot of the people driving by are suspecting that you've got some, you know, improper motive. And that's that's one of the other really sort of yeah. damning things about yeah. the fact of racial profiling to begin with. So, Andrew Cabral, um, there were two parents in this Varsity Blues scandal. Uh, and that was the parents paying astronomical amounts of money to get their kids into schools that they had no business going to. Only those two, uh, only two parents decided to stand trial, and they both were uh, convicted. One was this John Wilson, who's going to be, he's a, a private equity guy from Linfield. He's going to be sentenced next week. And the other was a former casino executive who just got a year um, in prison for paying 300 grand to have his daughter get into the university. Southern California as a basketball recruit, even though she couldn't uh, play well enough to make her high school varsity team. But what I wanted to ask you about, and you can comment on the sentence thing too, but the lawyers um, for the guy, the uh, casino executive um, fellow, and I, I'm not going to – I don't know how to pronounce his last Nor name. Nor do I, actually. So I'm not going to uh, botch it. Uh, but um, the lawyers made a very good point that they thought – they argued – uh, that the casino magnet should have gotten less prison time than parents who involve their children in the scheme, sometimes having them pose for photographs to submit with their fake athletic profiles. The casino magnet who uh, was just sentenced did not involve his daughter. Apparently she was unaware of it. And I thought that was a good point. I mean, I'm not saying the guy shouldn't have gotten a year. That's fine with me. But I'm with you. Um, I never if thought you, of it either. If you dragged your kids into this, that's worse, isn't it? Well, uh, but I think that the by and large, what you've seen among the parents who drag their kids into it is that they've pled guilty. Yeah, Pleading they've almost all pled guilty. Means that you have to acknowledge it, right? You yep. have to express remorse. And as the prosecutors pointed out, this he didn't apologize for anything, never showed any remorse until uh, it was time for sentencing and he asked for leniency. But I actually question, and, and listen, I was not, you know, recruited uh, as a sports, you know, uh, uh, scholarship recipient or anything like that mm-hmm. to a college, so I'm not exactly sure how this works. But how could his daughter be recruited to a university as a basketball recruit and have that appear nowhere in her application or in the acknowledgement or admissions letter? Oh, that's, I mean, a, if you're that's a good point, Andrea. As a, as a sports fan, don't you know that that's, what, that's how you're being admitted? Isn't it that apparent to you? And wouldn't you have stressed that in your application? So one of two things is, has to happen here. Either she did know, and I just I did I do find it amazing that she's being allowed to stay at the university, university based on the fact that they say that she didn't know. But either she did know in some way, shape, or form, or he took all of her admission material and had it converted either by the coach that he was you know was paying off the person he was bribing, or he did it himself, and she never knew that her original application had been altered 
to, to add all of this information about being recruited. Because even if you're a coach and you're saying, I want this student to come in as a basketball recruiter or a hockey recruiter, whatever it is, there has to be a paper trail for that. Yeah. There I has don't to find be some it, indication. But in, the, in your voice, you, you make it sound like you don't find it cre- believable that the father, the now felonious father, would have made such an adjustment. Why, if you're willing to cheat the system to begin with, why do you think they wouldn't be willing to alter an application? No, I think, I said, that's why I said, one of two things is possible. Either she knew, okay. or, okay. Th- th- but once you get to the school, how is it possible that a school has students who are recruited based on their particular talents, not just this general sort of matriculation, their particular talents, and nobody the entire time you're there ever says, shouldn't you be playing basketball? That's a very good nobody, point. Nobody says it. Yeah. The entire, like, I just find that really, really strange that you would be recruited for a very, like being, a te- being recruited for tennis, and nobody ever questions why you haven't played a game the entire time you were there. <laughs> So, you know, that the, 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 we got to go, but that leads me. You were kind enough a few minutes ago to give unsolicited advice to serial killers. Do you have any advice for felonious wealthy people who are thinking of, like, sort of cheating their kids way yeah. into college? Any Don't advice for them? It. No, unfortunately, no. It would be just, you know, let, you, let, let your kid get into whatever school, you know, their ability allows them to get into legitimately. Yeah. But this has been going on forever. I mean, this is the fact that it's being dealt with now is pretty amazing because this has been going on for I, as long as I can. You know, one of the privileges of, of great wealth is this idea that your children, you can do with that wealth whatever it takes um, to get your kids into the school that you want. And, it, and, you know, it should also be said, for the parents, it's a big deal for the parents' reputation that the kids get into these prestigious schools. It's a point of bragging rights. And that's part of why they do this. Yeah, that, you know, is to be able to say of my course. kid got into this school or my it's for kid them as much school. as so for the kid. To them. Right. Yeah. I have two Absolutely. words to say to you, Jared Kushner. That <laughs> that is <laughs> yes. That yes. is uh, not a varsity yeah. blues case, but not that far off. Hey, uh, Andrea, it was great to talk to you. Be well. You too. Thank Bye. you, Andrea. Thanks. Andrew Cabral is the former Suffolk County Sheriff and Secretary of Public Safety. I thought that was wise advice for, for the people with dead bodies in the trunks of yeah. their car. Don't, don't violate traffic laws. Don't go over the speed limit. By the way, we should say Andrew Lelling, the former U.S. Attorney, yeah. initiated. Good for him. I mean, he did. This whole it was great. It was thing, great yeah. that he did the, this, and it was one of the, 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 the high points, I think, of his career. Uh, uh, anyway, Andrew is now the CEO of the cannabis company Ascend. Up next, Andy Anako joins us for the latest stories in the world of tech including how one couple managed to pull off a $4.5 billion crypto heist. Until now, that is. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie joining us via Zoom to talk all things tech, including how one couple, I love this story, one couple made off with $4.5 billion worth of cryptocurrency, or nearly made off with it, is Andy Notko. By the way, Andy is going to describe that case immediately after Marjorie explains blockchain, which she'll be doing. <laughs> she'll be doing. She'll yeah, be doing, that's right. And then I'll add something to it uh, when she's done. Andy's a tech writer and blogger. Thank goodness he's here. You can check his work out at Notko.com. That's yeah. I-H-N-A-T-K-O uh, on Twitter. Uh, hi, Andy. But Andy, Andy, before we get to my blockchain uh, explainer, <laughs> sure, yes. uh, there is something I do understand. Pe- uh, crooks coming through your front door. So let's start with that one. That is easily digestible for me. Uh, technology and smart locks, um, things are improving. Yeah, they're they're really really good, and I know this because not only was I just to have the usual just sort of like oh I, I got to write about this stuff interest and in taking a look at all these smart lock uh, technologies, but also because I actually needed to buy one for my own door. So I spent the last year and a half looking at uh, everything that was out there, all the technologies that are used to keep things like safe and you secure. Spent a year and a half researching this. Yeah, well, you got to know and you got to know. And sometimes they'll tell you that they're going to fix something in a few months and you got to wait for that to happen. And uh, By the way, and, during was, that year and a half, someone broke into his house, took all his stuff. <laughs> but it, at the end of it, he was perfect. I'm sorry, Andy, go ahead. And, and, and boy, was he disappointed to find out, oh, I shouldn't have broken into the house of a freelance journalist. This guy has nothing. Nothing. Uh, That's an excellent but, yeah. point, Andy. Yeah, years ago when these locks started going on the market, a lot of them were really kind of like uh, dangerous to use because like the, the you could connect to them via Wi-Fi, but they would trust any device that could find it on the network. That was really, really bad. Or they would have like a fingerprint reader. If it opens by fingerprint, that could be really easily spoofed. Uh, all kinds of different, or, or if you, uh, if another big problem was that like for convenience, like these things need electricity. They're, they're powered by battery to, to work. But, but if the batteries fail, uh, it does, oh, well, I don't want to lock this, per, the, my, my owner out. So I'm just going to reset to factory settings. So if you could just like cut the power to the lock, it would just reset and unlock itself. All of that stuff is gone now. Uh, the ones that are, that you're likely to find pretty much anywhere, Home Depot, Amazon or anywhere, the technical, the, 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 the tech features are very, very solid. You would have to have the only, I actually only found like one exploit for a weakness in one of these locks. And it was discovered by a really intense, like white hat, white hat security researcher. And to pull it off would have required a lot of technical expertise and basically sitting in your driveway with like a scanner for a long time to figure out how to generate this code that would unlock the door. So pretty pretty safe but the really really creepy thing though however that i discovered is that again all this high tech stuff is really really good the fault though is that like in the lock that i have ended up buying uh, there is also like a conventional keyway so that if you if you want to like put in a key and turn it and open it'll work that way and that that uh, that keyway is like dog food it is so badly made uh like there is a tool that you can buy that's been around for like decades it's just a piece of stamped metal cost 10 bucks and would it would take me I'm not joking, 10 seconds to explain how to use it. And I was able to open up this door via that tool in less than like five seconds. And uh, that was, it, it It really is like sort of like beguiling that uh, all the stuff that you don't necessarily trust because, ooh, it's the internet. Ooh, I can't, people are going to hack into my, my door lock. All that stuff is good. But this thing that had, there have been, uh, there have been workarounds to protect door locks against these sort of attacks for decades. If it's a cheap lock, 
it's you're still vulnerable. I, I'm okay. I, I did. I took I took the lock to a local locksmith, and they were able to upgrade. It's like a, you just pull out the old lock chamber, put in a new upgraded one that's much much better, and now they'll keep the knuckleheads out. But it's a word to the wise that oftentimes it's the things that you kind of assume you always have trust in since you're a little kid are the things you shouldn't you shouldn't be trusting so do you have any recommendations or are you basically giving a an approval rating to the industry in 2022 well i i bought one that's made by a company called ultralock because it had all the features that i wanted i really did want to get not only just to test it out for myself so i could talk about it but also because for a lot of convenience features i i do a lot of stuff where i live in like a, in a busy neighborhood sometimes i, I want to leave the house just for like five or ten minutes to pick up a pizza order and come back right in it'll do things that'll lock automatically behind me it has the fingerprint reader i can use my 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 phone to lock and unlock so that, that's a good like three $350 lock plus like a $50 upgrade at my locksmiths. Uh, but most of the ones that you pay more than 50 or 60 or $70 for are, are going to be very, very good. I don't want to, I don't want to single one out as the best because okay. my testing wasn't that comprehensive. And frankly, for a lot of people, it's the hundred dollar lock that will do just fine. You don't need the three or $350 one. Okay. So three G is about to bite the dust. I think imminently, at least for some of the companies, what's that mean for real people? Not that much. Uh, the AT&T very cutely decided that on uh, on February 22nd of 2022, so yes, 22222, uh-huh. they, they would shut down all of the 3D cell, 3G cell towers. Uh, so if you have, if you're time traveling from like 2011 <laughs> and you still have, no phone that you, that relies on 3G is still in operation now. So that's not really a problem. Uh, AT, uh, T-Mobile and Verizon are going to follow up. And by the end of the year in the United States, you won't be able to find a, a 3G cell tower. These devices won't be able to find or connect to a 3G cell tower anymore because again it's not being used the pro- the only problem though is that a lot of 3g radios uh, are actually inside cars and a lot of these cars are have been sold as recently as 2021 and it uses the 3g uh, radio as an internet connection so it can uh, do things like uh, uh, talk to uh, talk to the factory uh, it can do things like uh, uh, when you uh, do a smart, when you have a, a key fob that can remote start the car or remote unlock doors, get the car the car seats uh, heated up, that sort of thing. Oftentimes, it communicates to the car through 3G, so you can do it for, no matter where you are. More kind of distressingly, uh, OnStar or a lot of emergency services like that bu- magic button that will automatically sure, call nine one one. Yeah, right. That's based on a th- that will, that's probably based on a 3G uh, cell phone. And so, what do you do car- about that? Not much. Unfortunately, there's there's no like one catch all thing to do. Um, a lot of car makers have already started to address this. Uh, like a Tesla, if you got an old three G radio, if you for two hundred bucks they'll upgrade your hardware. I think uh, to four G. Uh, some of them are uh, have pushing have been pu- already pushed over uh, through the radio, like digital updates to the software, so that it can kind of handle this stuff. Some are some company car companies are just saying that well, look, the agreement, the the, the, the user agreement back in uh, t- 2014 explicitly said that hey we didn't tell you that your car navigation would work forever so sorry you're gonna have to deal with it if you're concerned about it or if suddenly you find that features stop working you can call your dealership call your uh, and ask them if there is an update or upgrade available it might cost you some money so you have to kind of decide whether or not it's worth getting that 2015 ford explorer uh getting these three or four missing features back back up and running again wait a minute i just want to be clear i understand this story because i was a little bit confused 
Um, if you have an older car and you're stuck in the 3G thing when we go to 5G. Not necessarily so old. He's saying, Andy's saying, yeah, some cars well, yeah, recently is 2021. 2021 yeah. Yeah. Um, are you going to be able to hear your radio? Are you going to be able to play your podcasts or your music from your phone or not? Oh, yeah. In most cases, absolutely. Uh, okay. We're talking about, but the thing is, a lot of these car, like the car entertainment systems, you don't know at some point, are they, are they, are, are they count, is the software that's running it uh, checking on the ability to be able to call back to Ford to say, hey, is there a software update that I need to download? Okay. Or, hey, I need, I, I want people to see the logo for the radio station, so I need to download that from the internet, and it's being provided by a server that now it can't, it can't connect to. Okay. So it's, it's, I, I, no one's going to be creating off into a ditch because, a 3G, because they have a 3G modem or 3G uh, radio inside their car instead of 4G. I think it's going to be more like nuisance features that are nuisance problems are going to start cropping up. But again, the big deal is that if you get into an actual accident and you're thinking, oh, thank God, I can just tap on, I can barely tap on this emergency call button. Maybe that emergency call button is going to work anymore. So if you oh. do have one of those front and center, you might want to call uh, call in and see, is this a 3G, uh, 3G uh, cellular connection? And if so, is there any way that I can swap that out for a 4G or a more modern uh, cell connection? So let's get back to this uh, this cryptocurrency story. I'm not going to actually do a blockchain explainer, <laughs> needless not? to say, because uh, uh, this is a beyond my pay grade. That's why we have Andy and Naka here. You want me to do it? Or do you want me uh, certainly, to... Jim. You, why don't you give it a try? Well, I don't want to upset yeah, the Andy. Puppets. I, I really don't want to upset <laughs> Andy, so we should probably let him. Yeah, this uh, $3.6 in stolen Bitcoin. So tell us what happened here. So this is this is really gets into the nitty gritty of how wacky and weird Bitcoin, all cryptocurrencies, currencies can be, as all these financial institutions and customers try to try to make it work like regular money. So back in 2016, one of the most trusted and respected uh, Bitcoin exchanges. And for loose purposes, you can think of this as a bank. It's a place where people like have their Bitcoin, Bitcoin stored. So if they want to trade it for other forms of Bitcoin or change it to money, they use this exchange where it's parked to make that happen. So in 2016, about 120,000 Bitcoins were stolen uh, from this virtual currency exchange. And back then, uh, Bitcoin was trading at $600 per coin. So that was $72 million worth of Bitcoin. And it took uh, federal government investigators up until just a couple of weeks ago to figure out where it went and how to get it back. And I, I boy, I, I could, I'm not going to take 40 minutes to explain exactly how comical a lot of these transactions were, but essentially it wound up in the hands of this married couple who were, I don't know, it just like they're so in over their heads. The, 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 the digital wallet along with all of the addresses and passcodes they needed to access that wallet was up was update uploaded to uh, to basically a cloud account like not not necessarily iCloud but just like iCloud and so once it was there like the feds who had been following this money noticed that it went there they've been following these two people they said wait a minute we can just get a warrant and grab that digital wallet we now have a list of all the passwords we need to move all of that bitcoin back in, into federal custody to custody to seize it so that's what they did they they seized uh, not the not the entire hundred twenty thousand uh, Bitcoin, but something like ninety six thousand of it, uh, and the rest of it is pending investigation. And they arrested both of them and charged them with uh, 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 with money laundering and a couple other banking offenses. But so, but but the the funny thing is that again, it was seventy two million dollars worth, six hundred dollars per Bitcoin back in twenty sixteen. 
Of course, speculators have driven the value of Bitcoin up insanely. So now that is a haul of a total of $4.5 billion. They're worth $44,000 per Bitcoin today. So they seized, uh, they managed to get back 96,000 of those. So that is a $3.6 billion seizure, by far the, the largest seizure, I think, uh, in, de- in departmental history. Okay, uh, so and- Andy, I know I'm going to regret this greatly, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> uh, 120,000 Bitcoin. Could you describe for those of us who may not fully understand the field, what does that mean? I mean, what is that thing? What What is that 120,000 thing? Uh, and how does it manifest itself? What it is, is if you can imagine it as almost literally like buying any other form of currency, like buying pesos, buying pounds, buying yen, buying whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all digital. So it's actually just a sequence of numbers and letters that's controlled by a, a, an encryption key. And it's stored in this this entity called a wallet. So this could be like a this could be a file on a hard drive. This could some people store their Bitcoin like uh, personally. They have like an actual little like uh, USB keychain sort of thing that has super super security on the device itself, so no one can read that file off. Because remember, if someone can get that that bunch of numbers and letters and plus the passcode, they can simply take that money and put it into their own account. So you have to protect it very very carefully. Or you can have it as it can have you can have a, a a third party act as custodians. That's a, that was that currency exchange that we talked about earlier, because again, it's not very, it's, it's not, it's not the most useful thing when you actually just have to actually present yourself with your hard drive and with your, with your key fob in order to do something helpful with that Bitcoin. Like again, trade it for something else, buy a pizza with it. This was when it was, when it was first introduced in 2009. Yes, you could buy a pizza with a Bitcoin because it only cost a Bitcoin was only valued at four or five, six dollars. Unfortunately, because it's been traded like a really like a like an investment and like a speculative investment, the the value of Bitcoin, this one form of uh, of cryptocurrency, has just gone skyrocketing, skyrocketing, skyrocketing high. Uh, and so, as far as what it would actually uh, look like to you, again, it's just a sequence. All, all all this is down to is a sequence of numbers and letters, just like this thing that's protected by a passcode that hopefully only you know about. That is almost as easy to lose as an actual $10 bill because there there are people who if you have it on a hard drive or if you have it on one of those keychain things and you lose the keychain or you forget what that passcode is that bitcoin still exists it was created it's still somewhere as a record of at some point this bitcoin was created in 2009 2010 whatever at some point you bought it and you acquired it but you can't access it so it's like the, it's like that 10 dollar bill just basically went down the sewer it exists but now it's far beyond your own reach this is why a lot of wacky things can happen like this is this is this is the the I don't want to use the word funny, but let's say weird. Uh, so uh, the exchange that uh, that was uh, the victims of, of this of this uh, of this attack, uh, all that money was stolen from customers of Bitfinex, people who had chosen to store their Bitcoin essentially in their vaults, so to speak. And in t- uh, eight months after the hack in 2016, Bitfinex basically they put they they made a whole bunch of really complicated technical things happen, uh, like a digital IOUs. And by the end of eight months after that, they announced that they had basically made good on all the losses to all of its customers, and they basically closed the books on it. So they get so, to keep not- all the money. 
that's the question now. So they are saying on their website that, look, they've settled all the debts they, that uh, they incurred from that, all that theft. So therefore, they're entitled to get this Bitcoin back. Again, not at $600 per Bitcoin, but now worth $44,000 per Bitcoin. Customers, however, are saying, hey, look, we, we, yes, I know that we took, this, we, we took this settlement or we took this arrangement that you, you, you closed out eight months later. But I want my, I want my four Bitcoin back. I, don't, I, I thought that I'd park like $2,400 in there. Actually, I'd much rather have the $200,000 it's now worth. So it's all going to come back to whatever the terms of use were back in 2016, what they agreed to when they put their Bitcoin on Bitfinex. Uh, a lot of legal wrangling is going to have to happen. Right now, it's been seized by the government. The government actually has it in one of their own uh, currency wallets. So it's it's going to be there until this case comes to trial and is closed out, at which point they'll either going to auction it like they do with all kinds of other seized assets, or they're going to figure out that, okay, they're going to determine who this actually belongs to, almost like it was an oil painting that got stolen but then recovered. It had to be held as evidence, but then it gets returned to the rightful owners at some point. And nobody knows how this is going to shake out because this is such a new concept at this point. Do you want to add anything, Marjorie, to that, uh, to the explanation of any of these things, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, um, would you like to add anything? Well, I, I want to know how you buy pizza with Bitcoin. That's what I want to know. <laughs> it's, you know, it's it's very, very easy. Again, all you need is that sequence of digits and a passcode. There, I, I still remember back in 2009, somebody, a, a tech reporter or a business reporter on CNN was demonstrating how Bitcoin works yeah. by holding up a piece of paper that, okay, now that I've done this transaction, here is what my Bitcoin looks like. And he basically bought... I think it was like a, a, a one Bitcoin for twenty dollars or something, uh -huh. and then like ten minutes later, he, he ten minutes later, like after he got a bunch of information saying, "Okay, it turns out that somebody had someone has stolen my Bitcoin because <laughs> he he didn't know that with, he was he was showing the information that said here is how to, to transfer like my Bitcoin into your blockchain or excuse me how to transfer my Bitcoin into your wallet." And he said, "Okay, well, I guess we all learned something today that <laughs> that it's not you, you can steal things through cable television, and of course, if he's still had it he'd be he'd have he'd have like about forty four thousand dollars worth of bitcoin right now if he had not shown up that piece of paper so, so wait that, wait that, I, I, but i want to be clear do you feel able marjorie at this moment if i if i were to say to you marjorie could you do me a favor we have a meeting this afternoon yeah is there any chance on the way to the meeting could you buy me a pizza do you feel you're at the point where you could pay for that pizza with bitcoin i, I do not know <laughs> I do not feel I'm there. Yeah. You, know, you, you actually can still do it. There, there are still some ATMs. There are, there are some ATMs or some some companies that actually do transactions that way. And of course, the, your large pizza will cost point oh 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 one bitcoin. Bitcoin. It's not oh, like what a it's not deal! Like what a deal! Exactly. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll make this quick because it still is hysterically funny. Another picture has been like circulating the internet, but there's some sort of a game, a video game competition in 2011 <laughs> and they said here's the prizes prize number one here's a 500 hundred dollar game console for a second prize is like some two or three hundred dollar prize for the third prize is like a hundred dollar something that's worth a hundred dollars and oh well just as a sort of like a consolation prize <laughs> the people who come in like fourth through tenth they each get like five bitcoin each like that's a fortune the people who were came in tenth in this video game competition wound up coming up with value getting prize that was that's now worth like Three hundred thousand dollars. It's oh my amazing. God! Can can another you, opportunity passes can by. I say one thing. <laughs> yep. uh, I'll pass on the pizza for today. Oh. Maybe, maybe, 
Well, Andy, I think you have inched us forward in our understanding of this issue. We still have a ways to go. A ways to go, yes. But I think you're the man to take us there. Andy Anotko, it's great to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Andy Nacco is a tech writer, blogger, and podcaster. You know, I always used to think I was going to buy a triple-decker in Chelsea. I never did that. Too late no, now. Yeah. But we missed on the Bitcoin. I guess we did, Jim. You know, this market I go to, Pemberton Market, North mm-hmm. Cambridge, yep. or Mass Ave, yep. has, an eight, has a Bitcoin really? ATM. Yeah. Uh, I'm too scared. I mean, I'm just... I'm really... I knew you were going to ask. I shouldn't have... I'm, like, too nervous to put my credit card in or what, whatever. You know what came out? You know what was amazing? What came out? The other day, someone yeah. put something in. You know what came out? What? Pizza. <laughs> Don't ask me you how can it get happened. Pizzas and vending machines now. We read about I know, this morning. It's incredible. Yeah, it takes them three minutes to cook. Anyway, Andy Nako joins us every week. You can check out his work at Nako.com. That's I A, excuse me, I H N A T K O, or follow him on Twitter at Nako. Shirley Young is up next to talk about history being made at the Boston Fed and a bunch of trouble for Peloton spinning out. Shirley's next. Stick around. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie And Joining us next online to discuss an historic day for the Boston Fed, thanks to Susan Collins, not that Susan Collins, but another another business stories is uh, Boston Globe business columnist, Shirley Young. Shirley, good to talk to you. Hi, good to see you. You too. Well, great to talk to you too, too Shirley. But before we get to Susan Collins and the Fed, um, your colleague Larry Edelman wrote a great piece I don't know, two weeks or maybe three weeks or so ago, about people that got money during the pandemic that filled out all the forms correctly and they submitted the forms to the government and they got their unemployment. And now the state of Massachusetts uh, was telling them they owed them five grand, 10 grand, 15 grand. Uh, there's been a development about this um, coming from the Biden administration, the Labor Department. What, uh, what's going on? Uh, So the Labor Department issued new guidance on Monday to give states more leeway in terms of waiving um, uh, more of these overpayment notices uh, that people have been getting. And um, this is a situation where um, the state has been sending notices, hundreds of thousands of people saying um, there's been a mistake. We overpaid you unemployment benefits. Um, and you need to pay it back unless you can, you know, prove or or argue why you don't need uh, you, that you weren't overpaid, um, you were properly paid. And um, you know, when we looked at it, uh, when Larry looked at this, um, it, it's it's a little it, it's like a blanket waiver, right? It's not like everyone's forgiven. And um, and but the labor department is signaling that it it wants to be more uh, generous in terms of of trying to get some of these situations straightened out. And so I think it'll still be unfortunately I think it'll still be a slog for hundreds of thousands of claimants um, because they still have to get through to the the state unemployment office. Um, they still have to uh, they still have to get through to them and and make their case. By the way, while Larry Edelman started this, Shirley's written about this too. You've both done terrific work on this thing. We discussed this with uh, Governor Baker at some length off your writing. 
yours and Larry's when he was here a week or so ago. And his his position was that the uh, vast majority of the outstanding money was federal money over which he had no control unless Congress act. But we didn't talk about whether the Labor Department could act and do something, which obviously is good. And the remaining portion uh, was uh, was state money, but a, a minority of the money, smaller portion. Uh, two questions. One, is anybody on Beacon Hill – I know that there was a legislator who wanted the – terms for state waivers to be modified and made easier. But is anybody uh, on, in Beacon Hill talking about more of a blanket relief for uh, for uh, those who, again, got the money through no fault of their own, the vast majority of whom in all likelihood have spent every single penny probably on necessity. So they're in a really tough spot. Is there any move in that direction or no? I mean, not a blanket. I think this is happening in stages, right? It's not. I think. I think what there's some legislators on Beacon Hill, specifically on the Senate side. Uh, they want to look at how can we, uh, how can we um, uh, make this because pro- it's a very frustrating process. You know, we've talked to many people who've gotten these notices. They spend hours on the phone for months trying to make, trying to appeal, trying to get a waiver and they can't get through or they get conflicting information. I think before you, you, you go to straight to blanket waiver, I think everyone needs to be heard or, or there, you know, um, people need to feel like the process is fair uh, rather than, uh, oops, they made the, they, they, they missed the deadline and that's it, you know, because they got this money in many cases. I mean, they, they were approved by the state, Obviously. you know, um, but, and so, uh, so anyways, but I guess we say is that it, it's, it's, um, I, I, I feel like what the labor department did this week was to, to signal to the state, you, you can be, you, you can do more, more flexible and in terms of you right, be more flexible. And, and it's un, I'm not sure if the, the department of unemployment assistance is, is taking that signal and, and running with it. <laughs> well, a couple of things. We mentioned this yesterday in a globe reporting on the $101 million COVID bill that has expanded dramatically since its original, I think, $46 million shape at the beginning, uh, includes a million dollars for some services within state labor department to help people with their waiver requests and that sort of thing. That's one, which they deserve credit for. I have to say, I guess I'm an outlier on this. Maybe I'm not sure I'm an outlier in this group, but I may be. You know, Larry Edelman sort of ruined me on this topic in his first column on this. When he ends his column uh, mentioning, and some people think it's not a fair comparison, I think it's totally fair, uh, he mentions that uh, it was not so long ago, I guess in 2008, that uh, billions and billions and billions of dollars of uh, relief was granted to irresponsible banks and other financial institutions and by the way, in those circumstances, he didn't say this, I'm saying this, that was through a fault of their own as opposed to these recipients. If America and our leaders decided it was appropriate for that, why haven't hasn't America and our leaders beyond just the Labor Department, whether it's members of Congress or members of the state legislature, saying these people who are totally innocent uh, people – deserve, assuming we can figure out where the money comes from, which I know is not an insignificant thing, they deserve uh, across the board forgiveness as as well. It isn't like this has never been done before, Shirley. 
Right. But I guess for me, in talking to so many people, I, I think there needs to be more transparency in the process. I mean, I don't even know if I, I think part of me is like, I don't even know if um, if the DUA has has the over, you know, they've got they've sent the overpayment notices to the right people, you know. So it's like you almost need to kind of figure out, well, how much of this is correct and from correctly, uh, you know, the notices are correct. And, and the thing is like, but Jim, you've, you know, you, we've talked about this and, and I interviewed, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, done the pieces on this and that the, the size of the claims it's, it's, you know, 700,000 claimants. Uh, it might be just too much work. And, 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 I feel like there could be a bigger argument for that. It's so it's not even worth. No, but I, I, I think we're know, like, the way I think we're talking across purposes. The reason I think that the blanket forgiveness makes sense, mm-hmm. assuming the source of money can be. And yeah. Jim Rooney, the head of the chamber in Boston, had one suggestion in a column that one of the two of you wrote is because it is so big. The notion that even yeah. people who are entitled or potentially eligible for expanded waivers. We'll know about it. We'll get through the process to have somebody to represent them if they feel they can't do it. I think this cries and, out for across-the-board relief. And there was – I talked to you about this earlier this week. We were going to talk about it, but we changed our mind. There was a juxtaposition of these two stories, which just hit you over the head in the United That's States it. of America 2022. Seven out of ten Americans oh, yeah, yeah. are living paycheck to paycheck. Meanwhile – And can't come up with $400 for an emergency, yeah. right? Juxtaposed to that was how the bankers, whom we bailed out, even though they screwed up big time in 20. 20- Oh seven, how they in twenty oh eight, how they were spending these astronomical bonuses, you know, of of tens of thousands, sometimes a million dollars a year, on going out to dinner with their colleagues and buying, uh, you know, five fifty thousand dollar bottles of of wine and champagne and stuff. It was like this have and have not, and and that I think is it was the thing that was so awful in in Larry Edelman's exactly what you you said. We can. Give huge tax breaks to people that are millionaires. There are bail, oh, bailouts, in bailout this case, yeah. banks, uh, and and or bailout airlines that instead of using their money to hire people back and give better offers to their employees, use it to buy back uh, uh, stock. What, how do you, what do you call stock that? Stock buybacks. Yeah, stock buybacks. So it's just we're out of whack. I think our our values. You know what I mean around this? Yes, because. You know, I think of this group of this class of people. I, I mean, these are people who lost their jobs already. Unemployed right? people. Unemployed exactly. Asking, <laughs> you're asking for money back. But at the end of the day, I, I mean, I feel like, I mean, it, there could be potentially, um, you know, four to five billion dollars of overpayments. And so, you know, can Beacon Hill eat all of that? Um, can the state eat all of that money? Um I assume what will end up happening is the state and the um, federal government are going to be fighting it, fighting who eats eats what. (laughs) I think that's where we're heading. Um, Yeah, all I'm saying, by the way, you know, we're going to do, we're going to pause for one second here. John, can you try to see if we can get a little bit better connection with uh, Shirley? We're missing almost every other word and we'll rejoin Shirley Young in a minute. The point I'm trying to make, I don't think I'm articulating this very clearly. What is the point, You're speaking to the uh, uh, what's equitable. I am totally with you, Mm -hmm. uh, especially compared to other entities that are far less deserving that have gotten that have gotten bailouts. But the second thing I'm, I'm trying to say is, while Shirley makes a wonderful point that the price tag may be unattainable, 
the other equally good point is it is ridiculous to think that hundreds of thousands of people are going to be able to manipulate a a waiver system to get what they're right. entitled to, even if they should be entitled to a waiver. So some sort of blanket relief is what I was trying to say. I believe that those recipients are entitled to. Let's say it for the third time. No fraud alleged. The state determined they were eligible. The state was wrong. And in all likelihood, particularly since they're unemployed during a pandemic, they spent all the money on things that were urgent in their lives. Okay. Shirley, let's move on to um, uh, something. She's not back oh, yet. Not That's back why yet. I was talking Okay, to you. well, I'll start explaining. We're, it, what um, is it? Um, Katie Johnson wrote this story for the Boston Globe talking about how more and more companies are offering paid leave for pregnancy loss. Mm-hmm. It talked about the uh, Mince Levin, that's a law firm um, in Boston, is offering its 1,200 employees, about half of whom are in Boston, 15 days of paid leave yeah. following a miscarriage, and miscarriages are very common, five days after a, fa- a failed fertility treatment. I don't understand this. If if it means a failed adoption, I don't think so. Or surrogacy, I think it means adoption. It has to be more than five days. Oh, okay. Shirley, I was just talking about the Katie Johnson's piece about um, yes. uh, miscarriages and um, pregnancy losses. Mince Levin doing uh, is is leading the way on this. Apparently, that's a big law firm in in downtown. So, um, and by the way, Catherine Clark, who's a congresswoman, who's uh, what is she number four in the House? Or something she is like number that? four in the House. Yeah, uh, she had a piece in the Globe today talking about her own uh, miscarriage, uh, and I think ten to twenty percent of pregnancies end in miscarriages. So, by tell- the way, uh, uh, Congresswoman Clark will be with us on Tuesday. So, obviously, yeah. it's one of the things we we'll talk about. Um, so, how did this all come about? Yeah, so so the story that Katie wrote about was there was an attorney there who had two miscarriages in the span of six months, and she realized that her experience is quite common, and women often suffer in silence. And so she started to do some research, and she found that this was a, a growing trend among companies uh, to offer some kind of um, paid leave uh, following a miscarriage um, maybe uh, and so uh, and I think um, there's a dating app company called Bumble. Yep. They started offering mm-hmm. that. The city of Boston does it, I believe. Um, and so uh, th- there's the public relations firm Ink House. Uh, there's also uh, countries that are doing this, like uh, requiring companies, like in New, as she says, every company in New, New Zealand. Um, and um, well, so I, I thought that was. I, I thought what was also very interesting about Katie's story is that. Uh, this is part of it, it's not just uh, this, this is kind of a whole new uh, category of benefits. Uh, I think they're called like signal benefits um, that that set them apart from other employers because uh, it's so uh, unique. This this idea of um, giving people time off for a miscarriage and also expanding time for bereavement, bereavement leave. Um, and um, and and she she writes about how. Uh, employers are competing on benefits not tied to the physical workplace. Right. They're kind of upping the ante on uh, these these paid leaves uh, versus um, you know fitness centers uh, in your workplace or uh, you know massage tables or foosball tables. You know, 
Um, and so, um, so I thought that was really interesting how, especially in this very tight labor market, um, employers are responding to the needs of employees. Yeah, I wasn't aware that the city of Boston had expanded um, uh, pay parental leave policy. It used to have six weeks um, off for stillbirths. Apparently now that's up to 12. But they also include uh, miscarriage and abortion, 12 weeks off. For those, which is is kind of a lot, I, I thought. I mean, you, you don't want to be unsympathetic, but that's that's a lot, 12, because if, it's almost as much time as you're going to get for having the baby. It, it, yeah, it's, it's a lot of time. I mean, I, I think um, the paid parental leave was something that started under the Walsh administration, and at, at the very end, um, they updated the policy. So, um, But, you know, I have to tell you, um, is it Google? Google's doing. Um, I think the the new the new parental leave is twenty four weeks. Yeah, twenty four weeks really? at Google. But, but <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. But so. I I don't think we have that in many places here in Massachusetts. Certainly not in the government. Or no. do we? I no, mean, no, I, yeah, no. twenty four weeks is. Uh, but but I guess I'm saying this. The you know, comp- employers are. I mean, when even when certainly when you had babies, um, Marjorie and, and and me, I, I you know I'm only a decade out, and there was no parental leave at the globe. Oh, at no, the time no, when I had my babies. You know, you got so disability is, uh, for six weeks. I yeah. think that was the sick th- leave. The you had to take sick leave and vacation, right? Sick <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you had that disability. Was, you got disability. disability. You right. You could take disability after a certain amount of time, and so uh, and but now uh, the globe does have uh, paid parental leave. And and so, uh, and and so that is a much more common benefit these days. And I think now, it, now everyone's trying to increase it. You know, beyond eight weeks, twelve weeks, um, you know, twenty-four weeks. I mean, in other parts of the world, I mean, parental leave is like a year. Yep. Yep. And we're yeah. doing it because we have to. I mean, yeah, it's one of the things. It's nice to celebrate these advances, but they're being done not out of. Uh, uh, kindness to one's fellow human beings who happen to be your employees, but because people, these firms yeah, can't hire anybody. Yeah, although i got to say, I worry a little bit about this because it, because I think there could be a backlash to this. But how? Well, if you're going to take 12 weeks off for a miscarriage or 12 weeks off for an abortion, and then you're going to take six months off for having the baby, I mean, I worry that it's going to hurt women that are having children because they're going to think, when, when exactly are you going to be here? You know what I mean? Shirley? What do you mean in terms of how the employer looks at that yes. woman? Yeah. What do you think? Well, you raise a good point. Um, you know, the when, when this is raised in terms of with maternity leaves, right? This, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the way to do it is to make sure the men also take time off. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. The men, the men also take time off. It's not just the women. Yeah. Okay. Know? Then it'd be a different uh, story, I guess. I worry about right. getting mommy tracked. That's what I worry about. And I think yeah. that happens a lot um, to yeah. women who, t- who take advantage of, of having these opportunities. But let's talk to some, let's move on to something else. Well, this is a great pandemic story. Well, actually, that was a pandemic story, too. But this is the ultimate pandemic <laughs> business. Peloton uh, uh, obviously exploded. Uh, not literally, but well, well, actually, in a couple of fictional 
uh, accounts that killed people, including on the whatever the new Sex in the City thing is. But oh, in yeah, any case, I've seen all the episodes. Yeah, you have. Uh, I hear it's like horrible. That. Just like that. In any um, case, just you know, like that. He's gone. But Mr. Just Big, like that. Just on like that. the floor. Yeah, just, yeah. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. But Peloton, and she didn't you know, call nine one one or give him. She didn't do CPR either, did she? Chris North plays uh, the bad guy, Mr. Big, on the show. She didn't. But yeah, you know what the great part I wasn't going to get into she that. Let him expire but they hire in the bathroom. So gym. he dies on the Peloton or off the Peloton. <laughs> no, off the, in the bathroom. Right, okay. But after the Peloton, right? Didn't he or yes. something? Okay. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, then Peloton out. brilliantly <laughs> hires him to do ads until he gets in trouble. For for his sexual assault, sexual assault. So, it's sort of, but that isn't what we're here to talk about. Of course, Marjorie no, takes it no. in that direction. So, Peloton is one is a great pandemic story. Uh, the sales went absolutely through the roof, uh, and Peloton expanded and bought new plant space and uh, hyped up manufacturing. And then, I'm not a business person. Even I could have figured out in a post – well, we're not post-pandemic, but as the pandemic started to wind down, obviously people are going to be homeless and less interest in Peloton. So this is like the ultimate, to me, obvious but cautionary tale, isn't it? You're absolutely right. I mean, think about it. There, there, there's only so many people who can afford a $2,200 internet-connected bike. Right, right. Yeah. plus the and monthly course, fee. Right, plus a monthly fee, and so, uh, so, so you know, so everybody who want, who everybody who could afford it and wanted one, got one during the pandemic. Meanwhile, I thought what was very interesting is that on the other side of it, the gyms, uh, the gyms stopped ordering, right? And so, uh, and uh, and now that the economy's opening up, I mean, there's only you could, you don't need a new bike every year, right? So it's a one-time purchase. So. Uh, the, the, I mean, unfortunately, the CEO, I mean, the, the, the Peloton, they had to lay off, they had laid off like 20% of their workforce, like 500 people. Um, and so, and, and then if you also, the other thing is that, um, it spawned a lot of competitors. There are a lot of, um, you know, versions of Pelotons and much cheaper, uh, now. So I think if you're interested in one of these fancy bikes, you probably can get one for half the price or even a fraction of the price now. Um, and so, but yeah, I don't know what, I don't know what's going to happen to the future of Peloton, but it is a very classic kind of pandemic boom and bust, right? <laughs> Peloton. Well, I do not have one and I'm guessing neither do you. So can we move to the Federal Reserve? History is being made at the Fed. By the way, I'm not even sure that the average person has any idea what the Federal Reserve does. They know that on the national level, they have something to do with interest rates because we've all been following these stories and the impact, whatever he opens his mouth, uh, what happens to the uh, your 401k or your 403b. Tell us about Susan Collins, the soon-to-be new head, and tell us about why we should care about what a head of a regional uh, Fed should uh, – uh, why do we care about who sits at the head of a regional Fed operation? Right. So Susan Collins, she's Harvard MIT trained economist. She's coming from University of Michigan. Um, and so she's coming back to Boston and, uh, she makes history on a number of levels. I mean, she's not only the first woman of color, uh, to lead the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, uh, but I think she's the first one among the 12 regional Fed branches, right? I think so uh, too. The system was created uh, a century ago. And, um, and, and it's important because you know they 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 they're best known for voting on whether or not uh, interest rates go up, right? 
uh, and um, and she'll she will be she will have voting she will they they go through this rotation and she's in the rotation where uh, the Boston Fed is in the rotation where she she'll have a say in terms of voting um, whether mm-hmm. or not interest rates go up or down or I should say go up <laughs> there's only one one direction these yeah. days uh, but um, but you know and also the Fed is very concerned about inflation but uh, regionally. Um, you know the the you know if I can talk a little bit about Eric Rosengren, the the, the uh, her predecessor, uh, he made a really um, big point at looking at community oriented economic initiatives. Mm-hmm. He he really wanted to help working class cities, the, the you know the Lawrences uh, of of Massachusetts, help lift them, uh, lift those cities up in terms of. Uh, their economies, and so she will have a big impact on shaping economic policies in uh, Boston and in New England. And so, um, very, ex- very excited that uh, that we will make history here. I mean, there are only, I think, two other uh, uh, Fed presidents who are of color, um, mm-hmm. and so uh, this this is terrific for Boston. Well, congratulations to Susan Collins and Shirley. It's good to see you. Be well. All right. Hopefully, uh, my it's pretty good, right? Our my internet has only cut out once in two years, so that's pretty good. Yeah, we're really glad no. we're honored that we were it. Uh, <laughs> thank you. See you, thank Shirley. You, Shirley. Shirley Leung joins us every week. She's a business columnist for the Boston Globe and a GBH contributor. Okay, up next, a rose by any other names still costs an arm and a leg. Or does it? MIT economist Jonathan Gruber, just in time for Valentine's Day, joins us for a conversation at the intersection of love and the global supply chains and inflation. Jonathan Gruber is next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And join us next online for a pre-Valentine's Day economics, I guess, tutorial is Jonathan Gruber. John is a Ford professor of economics at MIT. He was instrumental in creating both the Massachusetts healthcare system and the Affordable Care Act. His latest book is Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. Hey there, John Gruber. Hello. Hey, hey John. To great to talk to you. Okay, John, we're on the eve of Valentine's Day here. Well, almost anyway. Lots of people like to buy roses. And because it's wintertime, apparently the United States gets a lot of its roses from Colombia. Is this a problem? Well, I mean, it is, a, it is an interesting contrast, right, that Valentine's Day falls at a time where it's pretty hard to grow roses in most of the country. Correct. So what do we used to do for decades? We set up heat, uh, uh, hot houses right. all, around, uh, all around the country and uh, heated greenhouses, and people would work there and they'd make roses. And then uh, a couple decades ago we realized, well, it's a wonderful time to grow roses in South America, in particular in Colombia and Ecuador, um, and we started buying roses from there. And I recently got back from Colombia and Ecuador, and we saw the massive rose farms. We visited one um, where they would, were producing 60,000 roses a day. Oh, my gosh. Uh, uh, and as we're leaving Ecuador, there were dozens of trucks. We're leaving Ecuador in late January. There were dozens of trucks lined up to ship these roses to the United States. Uh, by the way, when you're there, uh, next time you go, you can, you can buy your, your loved one a dozen roses for $1.20. 
uh, wow. in Colombia. Wow. Wow. Uh, just, just before you go on, I'm just curious how they ship them. They obviously have to keep them really cold, I would think, right? Well, yeah, they keep them cold. It turns out you cut them early and you, before they've blossomed. Okay. We also learned there's enormous differences across countries and what they like. For example, in Russia, they like much longer stems than in the U.S. So oh. they actually grow them in different sections for different countries. It's a fascinating <laughs> It is business. fascinating, actually. Um, and, uh, but uh, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about what does that mean? Yes, How do we, we are. about that? On the one hand, we feel as consumers of roses, we feel good. Roses are a lot cheaper than they would be. Uh, roses are expensive, but they're a lot less expensive than it would be if we had sold to grow them in the U.S. You know, in inflation-adjusted terms, roses aren't actually that more expensive, much more expensive to give than they were when, we were young, when I was young. Um, on the other hand, a lot of people used to work in these heated greenhouses have lost their jobs. Right. So how do we feel about this? And this is really a Valentine's Day microcosm of the larger debate over international trade. Mm -hmm. um, the U.S. just set the all-time record for what's called our trade deficit. So let's define a couple terms here. When the U.S., when we produce a good and send it abroad, that's called an export. Um, so we export, for example, a lot of microelectronics and high-tech items. When we consume a good and bring it in from another country, that's called an import. We, buy, we import a lot of textiles and other sort of low low uh, technology goods. Currently, we import about a trillion dollars more than we export. So the U.S. trade deficit has set an all-time record at more than one trillion dollars. This was a major topic of discussion during the Trump presidency, with Trump lamenting um, the fact that we had this enormous trade deficit and saying we need to deal with it. And it was part of his strategy with China, was saying, gee, this is terrible. We, do, we need to have fair trade with China. We've got this huge trade deficit. And what I'm here to tell you is that the trade deficit is an, it, it's, it's a number that has meaning in a statistical sense. It is not a number you should care about much in a is it good or is it bad sense. Well, before you explain to us why we shouldn't care about it much, uh, I was about to say in defense of Donald Trump, words I cannot utter. So I'll rephrase that. Trump's argument, I assume, was uh, because of this trade deficit, it is the consumer in this country who suffers. Is that, was that his argument, I assume? It, it, exactly. We, we, we are losing the trade war. Yeah. And the way he put it. Why, is he, why was he wrong about that? Well, let me start with a simple example. And this example okay. is what I'm teaching, so it's a little generationally inappropriate for we, for we oldsters, but hopefully for some of your listeners it will be more relevant. Great. So suppose that you collect Pokemon. Yeah. And you like them all equally. Okay, you <laughs> want to catch them all, as they say. Okay, suppose that Jim has two Pikachus and no Jigglypuffs. <laughs> and Marjorie has two Jigglypuffs and no Pikachus. Yeah. So what we could do is we could have Jim trade one of his Pikachus to Marjorie for one of her Jigglypuffs. So in the end, you'd each have one Pikachu and one Jigglypuff. And if that trade happens voluntarily, you're both better off. But I could say, hey, Jim, you now have a trade deficit in Pikachus. You gave away a Pikachu... You got no more Pikachu, so you have a negative one Pikachu trade deficit. Isn't that terrible? Like I say, Marjorie, you have a negative one Jigglypuff trade deficit. You used to have two Jigglypuffs, now you have one. Isn't that terrible? And you'd say, well, no, it's not terrible. This is a voluntary trade I made. I wanted to give away one of my Pikachus for Jigglypuffs or vice versa. So if someone called and said you should not do this as trade, this is terrible, you're creating deficits in Pikachus and Jigglypuffs, you would say, that's silly. Well, that's no different than real international trade. So let's replace Jim with the United States and Marjorie with 
uh, Ecuador, and let's replace uh, Pikachu's with computers mm. and Jigglypuffs with uh, w- w- with roses. The point is, we bring in a lot of roses from Ecuador. We export computers to places like Ecuador. On net, but we, but on net we bring in a lot more roses and clothes and other things than we export. So what we do is you can essentially say we send out computers plus about a trillion dollars of money. We get back uh, about two trillion dollars worth of goods, and we're happy. We're basically happy trading that money for goods. What's wrong with that? The answer is nothing. Okay. Basically, other countries have cheap goods. We have a lot of money. Okay. We want to trade that money for their goods. No problem. But uh, so but it, it's fine. No problem, says the average economist. And I don't mean average in a pejorative way, but the typical economist, I should say. Mm-hmm. But obviously, that is not so good, for example, for the local hothouse uh, rose grower, correct? That, 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 that is exactly right. So, so in terms of – so here's the point. This is basically why do economists like free trade? I mean there's, there's very few things on which you can get as broad a consensus within the economics profession as free trade. The reason we like free trade is exactly the example I gave, that if the U.S. is happy to send some money – to China to buy cheap sweaters, and China is willing to trade their cheap sweaters for money, then, then, then that's a good thing. Now, the answer, let's go to a more relevant sector than he, he has. Let's go to textile workers. Hundreds of thousands of textile workers in the U.S. have lost their jobs over time because of trade with China. I don't know, hundreds of thousands, certainly tens of thousands. Okay, what about those people? Well, that is where the debate gets tricky, which is, what economists would say is we'd say, well, in theory, there's an easy answer. Consumers are getting much better off. Consumers of, say, sweaters or roses are getting much better off. Producers of, say, sweaters and roses are getting worse off. Yeah. We should just redistribute from the consumers to the producers. So let me give a simple example of how an economist would run the world. Let's say that absent trade, a decent sweater would cost 50 bucks. Or absent trade, a sweatshirt would cost 50 bucks. With trade, it costs 20 bucks. But a bunch of guys lose their jobs. We would say, hey, take all the sweatshirts you sell, add a $10 tax. The sweatshirt buyers are still better off because they're paying 30 instead of 50. But you take all that tax money and you compensate all the people who lost their jobs. You put that into retraining them and giving them money to find a new job, etc. And everybody wins. So that's the way, that's why economists like free trade, because basically, the gain to the consumers is bigger than the loss to the workers. That consumers are benefiting by more than, 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 than the workers are losing. And we say, fine, just take those consumers who are benefiting. Let's take some of that benefit and shift it over to the workers. But we don't and do that. A theoretical argument. Right? We, we don't, do, we that, don't right? do that. And so is that why you hear so many politicians say they're against free trade and there's all this backlash against things like NAFTA, et cetera? Well, by the way, let me just say, most politicians don't say they're against free trade. They say they're for fair trade. Fair trade. And, and, so, yep. and the, the notion is that that, that uh, uh, producer in China or the rose grower in uh, uh, in Ecuador or Colombia has an unfair advantage because of how poorly they are paid, etc. I mean, that's their argument, is it not? That's, that's absolutely right. Well, there's really, there's really two arguments. 
And you, you guys have you guys have very impressively hit both of them right away. I wouldn't go that far. Uh, uh, the, the first argument. Let, let me go to the second argument first, the, the one that Jim just made, which is that essentially the reason we think trade makes everybody a winner is because of this concept that we call comparative advantage. So let me teach you about. I gotta say this is probably like a top ten econ concept. This is a big one. So let's spend a minute on this, okay? So basically, what we say is um, that essentially some countries are very good at doing some things and not as good at other things. And countries have a comparative advantage in the things they're better at. Now, why do I just say comparative advantage instead of just advantage? And the reason is because um, comparative advantage is different than just an overall absolute advantage. And let me explain why. Let's think about LeBron James' decision to mow his lawn. Let's think about me versus LeBron James. And let's think about two activities, basketball and lawn mowing. Okay? Now, LeBron James is certainly better than me at both basketball and lawn mowing. I think we wouldn't dispute that. We would not. Okay? I don't know, John. I bet you're a mean lawnmower myself. But not like LeBron. (laughs) But not like LeBron. But the gap between our basketball abilities is infinite. And the gap between our lawn mowing abilities is, you know, what, two to one, three to one. So LeBron has an absolute advantage in both lawn mowing and basketball playing. But I have a comparative advantage in lawn mowing. That is a, those are the only two activities in the world. LeBron, should, should, LeBron shouldn't take time to mow a lawn. He just play basketball, let me mow the lawns. It's silly for LeBron, who, rather than my both playing basketball and mowing a lawn, that would be silly. Let LeBron play all the basketball, I do all the lawn mowing. And we should specialize in what we're relatively good at. And that is the principle of comparative advantage. That basically, don't have people do things they're not as good at, have everyone specialize in what they're particularly good at. And, and, that's, and that is the idea that motivates trade, that basically in a world with no trade, then the U.S. would be making all our own stuff, all our own textiles, all our own roses. It's inefficient for us to grow roses. That just makes no sense. Colombia shouldn't make its own computers. Okay? They don't have the skilled technology. They don't have the technology to know how to do it. That's silly. We'd have a comparative advantage of computers. We should make them. Colombia has a comparative advantage in roses. They should make them. And that's what makes trade work. But okay, does that make sense? I'm going to come to your question, Jim, but I want to make sure that that makes yes, sense. Yes, it does, actually. Okay. 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 So what's the problem? The problem is, to put an economics term, Jim has said that the way countries get comparative advantage could be unfair. So if Colombia's the, the, the typical economist model of comparative advantage is it comes from natural things. Like Colombia, they got great weather. God, the weather's so nice. Okay, especially in February, they're better than here. Okay, that's a natural comparative advantage. It's nothing evil malicious. It's just we have a holiday that falls in the winter. They have warm weather in the winter. Let's make a deal. Okay, nothing malicious there. But let's take NAFTA in the Bay of Mexico. If Mexico's comparative advantage is cheap labor, but the way they get that cheap labor is by not regulating practices and allowing workers to be exploited. And the way their goods are cheap is by having environmentally damaging production methods. We might not be so happy about that. So if comparative advantage happens for natural reasons, where people aren't doing anything malicious, then why not? But our concern, Jim's concern, and the concern of many people, is that sometimes the routes to comparative advantage can be socially damaging. And that is, that's a legitimate concern. For example, bad labor practices, bad environmental practices, um, or in the case of China, and this is why Trump had a legitimate beef, literal China.
China steals industrial secrets. China has a system where basically um, if you want to sell anything in the Chinese market, you have to produce it in the Chi- – you have to produce at least some of them in the Chinese market. And what they then do is they then use that as a base for industrial espionage to steal, industrial espionage to steal a number of ideas of what we produce. Well, that's bad. That's, that's a damaging route to credit advantage. We wouldn't want that. And that's a legitimate argument. But just just so I'm clear, um, Jonathan Gruber, and um, I'd be writing furiously if I were in your economics class right now about Columbia and roses. They can write right now. Well, I I I, I, so I could, but but the thing is that we're still leaving the rose producers in the United States, up you know in in the lurch, right? That, and, and so and, and that is the second problem. You guys yeah. hit the two problems. So one problem is what Jim mentioned, which is that maybe countries doing bad things to get ahead. And once again, that's not always true. In fact, usually with comparative advantage, it's not true. Canada has a comparative advantage in lumber because they have a ton of woods. Mm-hmm. Colombia has a comparative advantage in roses. So most comparative advantage isn't malicious, but some is. The bigger concern is that the workers are getting screwed. And this relates to the incredibly influential work done by my colleague, David Otter, who did work in the so-called China shock. And what David did was he looked at places in the U.S. where they're producing the things that China is particularly good at and asked what happened once we opened up to trade with China. And what he found was a ton of jobs were lost. Yeah. And people were way worse off in those places. And we never compensated them. We never made them better off. And that is a big problem. So really, yeah, go ahead, Marjorie. I I don't see us really ever making people better off. I mean, we just went through all this just with infrastructure and and childcare and all that stuff. So why would would we ever do that? Well, I mean, we have made efforts. So there's something called trade adjustment assistance, which was put in, I believe, in the Clinton administration. It may have been even earlier, which essentially gives both cash and health insurance to workers displaced by international trade from their jobs. Mm-hmm. But the cash is less than they were making. You've got to somehow prove you were displaced by international trade, which is kind of hard. And it's only partial. So this is why, in some sense, there has been a really economically – these two reasons, particularly the second, has led to an economically rational backlash against international trade. There's not – when people are against international trade, I think they're against it maybe for the wrong reasons, but un- the underlying notion that people are getting hurt unfairly has some truth to it. And that's why – but the answer is not to just shut down and not trade with any countries. So just once again, to be clear, if we said, fine, we're not going to trade with China anymore, you would literally pay more than twice as much for your textiles. Yeah. Okay, literally all, this, all your clothes, boom, they go up. They, we're worried about a 5 or 7% inflation. Talk about 100% inflation if we shut down trade with China. Um, on the other hand, we're worried about our workers and about their unfair practices, and that's why what economists say is the right answer is to negotiate trade agreements with other countries, like NAFTA was, or the, the new MACTA, or whatever it is that Trump renegotiated, that basically both set in place rules so that there is not damaging routes to comparative advantage, so they aren't doing things like treating their workers badly. But also, the U.S. needs, this is now internal, needs to figure out a way to redistribute to the losers from trade. Because honestly, there is a case to be made that literally the a large share of the shift towards Trump is explained by international trade. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of these people, they don't... Now, partly, 
folks who lose their jobs don't recognize that, well, they, they're losing jobs, but at least the goods they want to buy are cheaper because they say, well, look, it doesn't matter if it's cheaper. I lost my job. So what we need to do is figure out a way to do what economists say all the time. We sort of wave our wand and say, oh, just compensate the losers, and we move on. We need to figure out a more systematic way in America to doing that in a way that people lose their jobs because of international trade get compensated. Okay, John, happy Valentine's Day. Have you, bought, have you got your roses Thank ready you. to go? Uh, the, the, my, my, my wife said, uh, my my, wife my, said my, taking my. her to Colombia and Ecuador. My oh. wife said taking her to Colombia and Ecuador was, was worth a million roses. Okay. So That's what he says. Okay. John, John, thanks for you. your time. You bet. Take it easy. Yeah, you too. John Gruber is a Ford professor of economics at MIT, instrumental in creating both the Massachusetts Health Care Reform and the Affordable Care Act. His latest book is Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. You know, you're thinking about this, but we don't like you know, people losing their jobs. The other hand, we just finished talking in the earlier segment, and people don't want to pay an extra, you know, extra money to go to the restaurants. I mean, it's a yeah. Problem, but John's point was that, at least according to John, people could pay more for that product they're getting cheaply from Colombia and China, and still have a significant saving, and there'd be money set aside to compensate people, workers in this yeah. country, for getting the short end of the. But state. of course, we're not setting that. Money of course, aside. we're not doing. That. Okay, up next. You want to know if you're finding a sense of power and release in the, quote, good cry. We're spending the final minutes of our show celebrating our primal instinct to let the tears flow. That conversation is next. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. No more tutorials today. Now it's your turn. A couple of weeks ago, we opened the lines to talk about letting your pandemic anxiety or frustration out in the form of a primal scream as mothers groups organized to let it all out. But I'm guessing not everyone's going to have time, space, and moxie to scream out at the top of their lungs every time they feel the weight of the world on their shoulders. What we do have at our disposal, apparently, is a good old-fashioned cry. This great New York Times piece by writer Wesley Morris, formerly of the Boston Globe, published this week, highlights the power and impact of a good cry. That is, if you can allow yourself to let it hit you. Morris writes that, quote, crying arouses the animal in us. You don't access it. The wolf finds you. It drags immense sorrow through these tiny openings, nostrils, eyes, the mouth. It's the animal in us that needs to speak now. It's waiting, ready for a mass howling when we are. So we want to know if you can relate to this catharsis of a good uh, cry. And how about when you see somebody else cry, whether it's somebody you're close to, it's a public figure. How does that change, for better or worse, your relationship with an opinion of the crier, 877-301-8970. And by the way, it's the end of the day. We're not going to take calls, not that we're not respectful of people whose cries have been in reaction to just horrible events in their lives. We respect that, but that's not what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about it in more, I guess, mundane settings in your own life and uh when you witness it again in other people who are your friends or public officials, that th- sort of thing. 
89.7. Do you ever – I mean, I cry in movies all the time. Well, that's all one of the, the things time. he's talking about, time. that he became hysterical watching E.T. when he was a little kid and he's crying. Remember when they come, all the guys in the white hazmat suits and they're going to drag everybody out of the house and E.T. turns from being, you know, regular color to like ashen and he's dying and his little flowers die in the flower Do pot. I remember that? You're saying no. You but don't? I, no, but I, I oh don't my I, God. I, I sort of remember the hazmat suits. But almost every contemporary thing when there's a sad scene. Yeah. Don't you cry when you're West sitting on your story. couch or something? That just uh, that came out again. That, that, that you I saw was, the new one? No, I haven't oh. seen the new one, but I know it came out again. But I cried at the first one. And Belfast, I did see that. That was on TV. Cried that, that one? TV. Very sad. Very sad. Yeah, he's talking about t- crying at the movies. And I think a lot of people uh, can relate to that. It does a great takeoff on how uh, different people cry. You know, different actors cry. He talks about uh, Julianne Moore has a dry heaving style of crying. Tom Cruise muscles out his tears so it's not crying as much as a bench press. <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> Which I think is great. Viola Davis says she just belts it out. She just cries like crazy. Glenn Close cries like crazy. It's interesting the way he talks about different actors um, crying and how their ability to cry on screen is pretty impressive. Uh, 877-301-897. Who's a crier, by the way? Charlie Baker. I love it. In him. I have. To, mm-hmm. I really uh, – he is a crier. And I find it totally humanizing in a public figure, unless they're a fraud. Remember years ago? I don't, Baker's don't not remember. a fraud. He gets no, he's not at all. Up. I think it is totally real. He almost started crying the other night in the State of the State when he was talking I know about he his did. wife being I know his everything. Did. And when I mentioned it to him when he came here, started welling he up here. welled up here. Yeah, he is. In any case, uh, the best example I can think of of the phony – uh, sort of the crocodile tears kind of thing. The example Wesley picks in his piece in the uh, in New York Times Magazine is Kyle Rittenhouse on the stand, which helped get him acquitted, obviously, from the Kenosha situation a couple of weeks ago. Best example I can think of. Do you remember when Bill Clinton's Bill either Clinton. Normandy or something? And he is walking down a path, uh, and he's laughing with one of his secretaries. And I can't remember the, the secretary. I don't mean secretary as an administrative secretary, but a member of his cabinet. And he is laughing, and all of a sudden, this is so Bill Clinton, he sees that the camera is on him. Do you remember what he starts doing? Crying. Tears up. Right, right. Yeah, And tears so up. that is sort of the, uh, I guess, the uh, uh, cry by performance kind of thing. But I have to say, I find a, a, a sincere, spontaneous, and real cry in another human being to be about the most humanizing, connecting, I'm being serious, Marjorie's laughing, kind of thing one can possibly Sorry, I'm do. I'm laughing at something. It's okay. What are you laughing at? John Gardner says he cries every time Jim interrupts Marjorie. So he says he does a lot of crying. Amber says, an absolute must, but I'm all dried up, she says, for a while now after binge watching Afterlife. I haven't seen that. I don't know what that is. She either. said it was so raw that I pretty much silently cried watching every single episode. And I also think it's another place that's big on crying. Women's room. You know, every company I've worked at. People uh, go in the women's room yeah, and cry? Yeah, yeah. They, 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 uh, they had a fight with their boyfriend. They had a fight with their husband or something like that. And he mentions broadcast news. That movie's pretty old now. I think it's about 20 years old. Yeah. But he says it's a great American movie all about crying. Holly Hunter plays a daily weeper in I love with William that. Hurt until she finds out that Hurt faked his tears in an interview for a job. So By the way, you know who also wells up a lot is Joe Biden. Especially when he's talking about yep. his kid or other kids or cancer victims, that sort of stuff. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. I guess you know. I'm I'm curious to know what your reaction is when you see other people cry. I'm particularly interested though in what it how it helps you. I hope getting through these uh, uh, hellacious kind of times. Gary from Brockton, thank you for calling. Hey, Gary, what's up? 
Good afternoon, folks. Great topic, by the way. Thank uh, you. I was just thinking about this the other day. I I became a crier after the age of fifty for some reason. <laughs> um, I recently I recently was at my uh, father-in-law. Uh, he had a, a military. Uh, he had passed away, and they had a military uh, tribunal, whatever you call oh, it. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, a ceremonial yes. thing. Yes. And uh, I, I, you know, it sparked a memory when my father died. He also served in the Navy, and uh, when I went to his funeral, I was shocked. They had a, a recording play the 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 bugle, you know, uh, taps. Yep. And. Uh, I was shocked, and I was like, and I felt so guilty because I played trumpet. I played trumpet in high school, and I had a trumpet at home, and I could have brought it, but I just didn't think of it. I just assumed. So anyway, I, you know, 15 years later, I'm, I'm at my father-in-law's thing, and, I, you know, I said to my son, who also plays trumpet, I said, Zach, I, I want you to help me out with something. We have to play taps at your grandfather's funeral. And, uh, you know, let me tell you, it was great. I went to my father's site first, and... Uh, we played. I I could barely do it because I started getting emotional midway through playing taps. My son carried me all the way, but at the end of it, I put my trumpet down and I just bawled in his arms, and I think he was shocked that he'd seen that. Because you know, uh, 15 years ago, I I was so I just felt so badly I couldn't do that for my father, and you know, 15 years later, here I am. You know. Gary, That's you told a good that one, beautifully. Gary. Gary, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Jackie said that Nathan Chen, he won just won the gold medal. He's yeah, a fantastic figure skater. He says his usually stone faced coach welled up with tears after Nathan's performance, and apparently it was so unusual. Nathan himself couldn't believe that the coach was 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 uh, weeping. And Jeff- how about crying from anger? By the way, you and I, Marjorie, I, I don't think it's a secret. I am a bit of a complainer. I know that it's shocking for. <laughs> people and the person i complain to most usually on the phone mm-hmm. is marjorie That's and right. there i i, I, I actually charging. i actually do come when i hang up i often when i'm in my usual so state upset. of total rage yeah. uh, it, uh, i don't know if I, I cry as such but i cry like behavior on my part which i find incredibly cathartic by the way it's incredibly relieving in a way not quite when we talked to that woman i can't remember her name a couple of weeks ago who's doing the primal scream thing mm-hmm. that really lets it out but you can't do that in all places you can't no. go in your car the men's room the women's room and whatever and do a little weep kind of thing you know i always remember when i was in the third grade the teacher miss Leahy, used to give us quick tests and you'd have to you know send around you know three by three five by five and all this and there was this kid that sat next to me and he would drop his pencil or something would happen and he'd start crying. And not only would he cry, but he's got like these big red marks oh, all over his face horrible. and his ears. Oh my God. It was well, terrible. Well, you know what you just reminded Everybody me? made fun of him. You know what you just reminded me of? What? I can't believe you didn't remember the story. I, I, some, you know, uh, I went to public school for all of my career, my schooling, except for four years I went to a friend's school, a Quaker school in Philadelphia. And the headmaster, we called the men master and the women teacher in their first name, yeah. his name was Master Jack. Master and because Jack. I was misbehaving all Bad the time, sign. I was suspended quite regularly, as as you know. And you, when you're sent to the principal's, not principal, the headmaster's office, the third time you get automatically suspended. And my mother, who I was a single mother and had to you know, leave work and really upset her and that sort of thing. And what he would call – when I went down for the third time and I knew there was no out, you know how the – this is what the headmaster of the school called me to my face. Oh, tiny, tiny tears. tears. <laughs> I mean, 
Does it get any more sadistic than because I was crying because my mother well, had to yeah. leave work. She'd lose money. She'd be upset with me. Well, in any case, it's your name is Master Jack. Master I Jack. Can see how a little sadism at that yeah, operation. Sadism. Paul and Marshfield. I'm sorry to make you wait. Uh, welcome to the show. Hello. Oh, thanks a lot. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. Um, well, as a former resident of Hanover, Massachusetts, I can certainly empathize with my friend Jeff Magra that every time he opens his tax bill, he literally tears up. It's <laughs> a good one. Yeah. That's a good yeah. one. It's a different kind of cry, I guess. Paul, you know what, you know what's what? up? Go, Paul. Oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm good. You he's did got it. it. He's got it. Thank Paul, you thanks for the, for the call. Thank you for the call. You know what also makes you, I, I, makes you well up? And, you know, I, I never joined the military or anything, but sometimes I'll be somewhere and they'll be singing the national anthem or there'll be some America the Beautiful or something makes me kind of get kind of soft. No, I, I'm you know with I mean? you. I'm with you on that. Yeah. I actually am. 877-301-897. Do you, can we get back to the movies for one second? Do you not love crying at the movies? Do you not find that almost uh, fun well, is probably I, a poor choice of yeah, words? Yeah, I'm worried that somebody's going to see me crying at the movies. I don't like But it. everybody, wait a second, almost everybody's crying at the same scene that you are, don't you think? Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's why you want to go to the movies. You kind of feel like sitting in your in your couch at home crying at... Something I was crying actually at one of the Scandi Noirs that I was watching last night. You were? I was crying on the couch last night. Yeah. Something bad happened to a little kid. It really didn't happen. Oh. No, it theoretically happened, but it actually didn't happen. I'm not. Yeah. It's in the killing. Like Have you heard kids. of the killing? No. Danish? No? No. I, 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 I should watch Scandi Noirs. One of my good friends is into Scandi oh, Noirs my just like you. Nordic Noir, Scandi Noir. A lot of crying time. Amy from Boston. What do you Hello, think? Hello, Amy. What's up? Hey, um, I actually have two things. The first is uh, just a little bit of a funny story. We were at my daughter's, thank goodness, in-person graduation, college graduation this May. Mm-hmm. And um, before, like, the kids even came in or anything, my husband already started crying. And oh. <laughs> then as soon, as soon as the bagpipes started playing, he started crying. And he kept looking at me going, what's the matter with you? Because I, I wasn't crying. And he, uh, I kept handing him tissues, and he kind of yelled out to everybody, "Would someone come sit next to me instead of my wife? Because she's really insensitive." <laughs> oh no! That's actually pretty good. That's a good one. Oh I no! Tell, I always tell my kids, and I tell um, my good friends too. You know, like if somebody starts to cry, they're trying to tell you something, and like, "Oh, I'm sorry," and they apologize, or yes, they feel embarrassed that they're crying. And I always tell them, if your body's telling you to cry then you listen to it. Mm. You know, it's obviously telling you to cry for a reason, whether it's, it's for healing or to really feel, you know, a, a happiness or whether you're grieving, you should do it because I think it's all part of, of healing and kind right. of letting go what you need to let go. Amy, I love that call. That I'm was, really glad yeah. you called. And why are we ashamed of what, what's that about? I don't about? know. You know what's really upsetting, too? What's that? Uh, when you see your parents cry. Oh, that's hard. That is awful. Especially the first time. Yeah, yeah. very upsetting. Luckily, my mother never cried. Not even By the way, once. John, oh, is this you, John Parker, who say you cried during The Wizard of Oz? What oh, is my a, goodness. What is it? Oh, 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 at that, the end of Over the Rado, Ra- uh, Rainbow, John when Dorothy says, g- grabs, grabs Toto. Toto. Little oh. Toto. Remember the witch stole little Toto, put uh, her Toto in her basket I feel like crying away. now just thinking about it. Now, here's one from uh, Renee. She says she tunes to ABC Nightly News with David Muir pretty much every night. At the end of his show, there's always a story of some people that struggled, but somehow they persevered with help from a granddaughter or the FedEx guy or a stranger. She said it's her daily cleanse. She just wells up. 
and releases and feels the goodness of the cry and the goodness of people. Good for her. That can get you going. That's great. That can get you going. When someone, if, when, a wonderful person yes, has done wonderful things. Yes, you have these things, terrible yeah. things in the world and then yeah. you see somebody doing something really wonderful. You kind of well up over that too for the contrast to everybody, 99%. To the average human being. <laughs> doing so many and our leaders. Things. Yeah. Mary from Cambridge. Hi. Hey, Mary. What's up? Hi. Hi. This is Mary Captain. This is Mary Captain Dybel. Oh, hey. How are you? From upstairs at the pudding upstairs. We know who oh, you yes, are. Yes, your wonderful I restaurant you that I closed. Go ahead. Um, you know, it's so funny. I'm not a crier. And when we closed down after 32 years of upstairs at the pudding and a number of times, you know, Winthrop Square on upstairs um, at the square, on the square, we, um, you know, lots of people all around us were crying, or at least they're all around me, and um, I never broke down. I didn't feel emotional about it exactly because there was a lot to do, but customers did, and they'd well up, and people would cry and all that stuff, but the one time is the Sunday before we closed down, which was New Year's Eve 2013, 2013 um, right. we had brunch, and, you know, for, for 32 years, we'd had the Harvard Crocodillos, the acapella singing group. Oh, yes. And entertain our brunch customers, which was always so fun. You know, it was generations of kids that, you know, they just got younger as I got older. <laughs> and uh, and they were terrific. And it was kind of the same the same songs. And a lot of them were kind of emotional, like, you know, Odd Lang Syne, whatever. Um, oh, Danny Boy, that was a big one. Oh, and yes. There yes. Before New Year's Eve, and suddenly I just started bawling in the middle of the, the, the you know, the bar room, you know, the, the where they were singing. And I just, and I realized the difference was it was music. The music got to me, and it suddenly, it made me realize all of the emotions that I felt over having all of these wonderful customers, the Crocodiles and everybody else, over 32 years. It suddenly hit me, and I couldn't stop crying. And it was such an... I, it totally surprised me. I couldn't believe I was sitting there crying, but it was the emotion of of the music that did it for me. And it suddenly, I suddenly could release both my sadness and my happiness over uh, the career of the restaurant. That was a spectacular call, yeah, Mary Catherine. It, that was totally great. But Mary, you are so right. The the the, the music. I mean, oh, really Danny Boy, out, yeah. oh, my God, being Irish, and oh, my God, I've heard Old that Lang every Zine single is funeral. Old really Lang Syne, yep, Re- rethinking everything you've screwed up, you know. Hey, Mary Catherine, we're <laughs> really glad you uh, called, That's and I hope people point. had a shot at Upstairs in the Square before it closed. Well, Not- I also remember hearing the Harvard uh, Acapella Group when I was there for brunch. It was absolutely fantastic. You do. You yes. remember, yeah. Yes, they were great. Okay, um, Whitney Houston, the Super Bowl, that made Jack Reardon cry. Oh, I can't believe that. Yeah. We don't read last names in the air, remember that? Oops. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Oh, my God. That's okay. Oh, it was a good, but it was nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> okay, we're done, Marjorie. That's the way it works. Okay. That's why the music's playing. We are done. The music's playing. I cry every day when I hear this music, Jim. <laughs> yeah. And I think, oh, my goodness, another 24 hours before I'm oh, back. I have to see Jim oh. again. Okay, thank you for listening to another edition of Boston oh, Public well. Radio. You can keep up with us 24-7 by way of our podcast. 
Tomorrow, we're going to be joined by retired federal judge Nancy Gertner. Can't wait to talk to her. Plus, our media maven, Sue O'Connell, and Boston Globe TV writer Matt Gilbert, who just wrote this great thing about the 10 best miniseries on Netflix, and I'm so excited about it. Well, they're not all on Netflix. You haven't seen any of them, have you? I have seen some of them. Wow. Yes, I have. Shocking. I want to say, say thank you to our crew, Jane Bologna, Zoe Matthews, Aidan Conley, Mackenzie Farkas, Rebecca Tauber, our engineer, John the Claw Parker, and additional production support is provided by Prefi TK, Jim Browdy, you're not on television tonight. But I actually somebody, am on oh, television you are on tonight. Television yes, tonight. I am. I did not know that. Uh, in a couple of minutes, actually, I'm doing a taping with Laura Coates, CNN senior oh, legal analyst, former great. federal prosecutor. She wrote a great, great new book. It's called Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. It is terrific. She's going to join me. We have a story of a local woman bucking the trend of people leaving the emergency health care industry and returning to it, sort of part of the big quit series. And then we're replaying something that actually matters to you and me. On Sunday, Marjorie and I are going to be emceeing the sixth Winter Walk. You yes. can check it out, yes. winterwalk.org, to raise awareness and funds uh, to fight homelessness. And uh, the two leaders of that thing... Uh, are going to be joining me again. Well, not again tonight. We're replaying that because the march is, the walk is coming up Sunday. And we hope you join us. That's all tonight at 7 o'clock. Again, join us 9 o'clock on Sunday. You can register at winterwalk.org. I'm Jim Browdy. I'm Marjorie Egan. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope you can tune in tomorrow. Go have a good cry, and we'll see you later. See ya. <laughs>